Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. My guest today is David Sanra. He's a podcaster and a writer. Many of the most important insights you need to learn to improve your life have already been discovered in the past. Thankfully, David spends all his time reading biographies of the greatest thinkers, founders, entrepreneurs, and inventors from history, and has synthesized those lessons so that you can remember them too. Expect to learn how Steve Jobs came to think about time, what Kobe Bryant believed about the dangers of success making you soft, how the Rockefellers created their fortune, why crossing the Vanderbilts might result in you being very dead, whether anyone with extreme success managed to master a work-life balance, why you have to start reading Paul Graham's work, David's most recommended books, and much more. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've worn Whoop for over four years now, since way before they were a partner on the show, and it is the only wearable I have ever stuck with because it's the best. It is so innocuous, you do not remember that you've got it on, and yet it tracks absolutely everything 24-7 via something from your wrist. It tracks your heart rate, it tracks your sleep, your recovery, all of your workouts, your resting heart rate, your heart rate variability, how much you're breathing throughout the night. It puts all of this into an app and spits out very simple, easy to understand, and fantastic fantastically usable data. It's phenomenal. I am a massive, massive fan of Whoop, and that is why it's the only wearable that I've ever stuck with. You can join for free, pay nothing for the brand new Whoop 4.0 strap, plus you get your first month for free, and there's a 30-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it for free, try it for free, and if you do not like it, after 29 days, they will give you your money back. Head to join.whoop.com slash modernwisdom. That's join.whoop.com slash modern wisdom. This episode is brought to you by AG1. AG1 is a daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. Even with the best diet in the world, it is hard to make sure that you get everything that you need. And through a science-driven formulation of vitamins, probiotics, and whole food sourced nutrients, AG1 delivers comprehensive support for the brain, gut, and immune system. This is why Joe Rogan and Lex Friedman and Dr. Andrew Huberman and Tim Ferriss are all massive fans. They have tried every other product out there like I have, and this is by far the best one available. Since 2010, AG1 have improved the formula 52 times in the pursuit of making the best foundational nutrition supplement possible through high quality ingredients and rigorous standards. Also, there's a 90-day money-back guarantee, so you can buy it and try it for 89 days, and if you don't like it, they'll just give you your money back. Head to drinkag1.com slash modernwisdom for that 90-day money-back guarantee, a year's free supply, vitamin D, five free travel packs, and more. That's drinkag1.com slash 
modern wisdom. But now, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome David Senra. I, last night, was with one of the first eSports performance coaches. So he is a mental performance coach that is employed by an eSports organization to train their mental athletes, as they call them, to maximize their performance. And the stuff, yeah. that, they, the stuff that they're doing with these kids is so cool. Taking across all of the stuff that we've seen from physical training now and porting it across into something which is actually... I think the most mentally taxing sport that that, that exists yeah. because you can move your avatar on the screen significantly quicker than you can move your body, which means that you're basically overclocking your brain. Your brain was meant to move limited by the pace of your body moving when it comes to reaction times. And what you're doing yeah. now is you've managed to overclock the physical world and you're now trying to catch up mentally. This guy was fat. Thanksgiving dinner, nerded out with this guy for like two and a half hours. It was brilliant. That industry is very fascinating. Do you know Blake Robbins by chance? No. Okay, Blake Robbins, he's a venture capitalist. He's over at uh, Benchmark now, but he actually incubated 40 Thieves, that that uh, esports team and the brand and everything else. But his focus and why he's been uh, invited to take part in one of maybe, you know, maybe the most prestigious or one of the most prestigious venture capital firms at a relatively young age. I think Blake's like late 20s, whatever the case is. He's obsessed with the edge of the internet and um, he has this great line that has actually taught me a lot that everything is a game. And his point is, is like, if you look at uh, gaming as an industry, it's bigger than music, movies, and, all, and a bunch of other things combined. Um, so I do think, like, it doesn't surprise me that they, they're at the cutting edge. Of course, they're going to have some kind of performance coaches. I think everybody does. Like, almost all the top performers have somebody that they actually want to bring in. In fact, I just reread. Um, so I've done, I've probably done, I don't know, 10 or 12 by, uh, biography uh, uh, episodes on Steve Jobs. And then not only do I do I reread uh, like I read every single book I could find about him and then I would reread my favorite ones and then make episodes every new time because the words on the page don't change. But like everything that you've learned since the last time you read it has changed. Right. And then I would map out in the book um, all of the people that he was inspired by because none of these ideas are new. And I, I wound up mapping it out. and I did like a little bonus episode called, called uh, Steve Jobs and his heroes. And it just traces. I've done 39 episodes on Steve Jobs and the people he actually mentions whether it's da vinci alexander graham bell edwin land the founders of hp uh all these people that like influenced the way he thinks about his work and something steve did on the second time he went to apple right uh the time where he created all that value um because if you think about it he's kicked out of apple spends 13 years in the wilderness right from like age 30 to 43 comes back and essentially the way to think about it is like apple's in terminal decline it's almost bankrupt right it's running out of money they pay 500 million dollars for next and you could think about it as like they paid half a billion dollars to rehire Steve Jobs and they got the deal of a fucking lifetime, right? Fast forward, you know, now what? It, or 20 years later, it's the most valuable company in the world worth like $2.4 trillion. But what he realized was it was very helpful. And I actually heard a bunch of episodes you referenced, me and you both share uh, an admiration for Charlie Munger. He's like one of my personal heroes. And he says this, he's like the role that he plays with Buffett. It's like, it's very useful to have somebody else to organize your thoughts with professionally, right? That's the role that he plays with Buffett. So what Steve did is he hired this guy and he didn't had no official role inside of Apple. 
So he'd fly down. He lived in Seattle. He'd fly down to Cupertino on Sunday night. I think he would spend from Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. All he would do is shadow Steve. He could not say he had no authority inside of the company. He's just he's with Steve all the time. And when they have a minute, they'll have lunch together or they pull him to the side. They have one on one conversations. And it's that same thing. It's like you might not call it a coach, but it's somebody that is not a part of your company. Right. Doesn't technically work for you, but is very helpful to to bounce ideas off of and to like organize your thoughts. So whether you call it a coach, performance coach, you know, a friend, a confidant, I think that you see that idea over and over and over again. Well, there's that story about Marcus Aurelius as he was walking through the streets of Rome, he would pay another guy as all of the, the small folk were throwing flowers at him and saying, you're amazing, you're this sort of God emperor, we're so glad that you're here and the, the uh, empire was flourishing. And there's this guy walking behind him just whispering in his ear, you are only a man. You are yeah. only a man. So you could imagine if you were able to bring somebody back down to earth like that, but also have that as a confidant, someone that you can bounce ideas off, just how powerful that would be. I've noticed since moving from um, having a business partner in my last company to now mm -hmm. doing the podcast where it's me at the sort of top of the tree doing it on my own, I do miss being able to speak to someone and just go, dude, I've got this, I've got this idea. Am I being a dickhead? Like, is this, is this a good idea? And you go, yeah, of course it is. And yeah, I, I knew it was. Thank you. I knew it was. I knew it was a good mm -hmm. idea. I just needed someone to externalize, like to just blow off all of that extra kind of mental uh, energy and just cut, cut through the noise. Um, one of the guys that I've heard you talk about a good bit, and I keep on hearing about him from people that I respect a lot, but I don't know much about him, is yeah. Paul Graham. Yeah. What do I need to know about Paul Graham? So Paul Graham, I just spent the last like three weeks inside of his mind because he's got, you can read all of his essays online for free at paulgraham.com. And he's been writing for, you know, over two decades. In fact, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine, um, my friend Patrick, who runs the Invest Like the Best podcast. Um, and we were talking about that because, you know, every single, as far as like influential writing for technology startup founders, it's like Paul Graham's essays. And I'm talking about the last like, you know, 15, 20 years. It's like Paul Graham's essays, uh, Jeff Bezos's uh, shareholder letters, which are absolutely fantastic. I've read, you know, multiple times. And then Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One. And so I read, I spent the last three weeks, I read, I did three separate episodes on Paul Graham's essays. And then I was like, you know what? I'm going to reread Zero to One. I think this is the third time I read it. But in the view of how does this relate to what Paul Graham, like how he thinks. Um, and the thing that I think relates to what you and I do is he has this idea in fact the collection of his essays is you can buy the book it's called hackers and painters and he's like at the very top levels it's you there's no like painting by numbers right a lot of the best things um are i hate to use this word art because that's not the way i think about when i make a podcast i think of like it's a craft and it's like i'm actually making something but it's it's not science and it's not art there is like a a form of taste to it right um, and so he's like the best painters are that way, the best computer software, like uh, the best programmers are that way because he's a programmer. Um, he says like the best musicians are that way. I think podcasts are the exact same thing where there's this great I just I watched your uh, your appearance on Joe Rogan experience, which is which fantastic, by the way, you did a good job. Thank you. And it was fascinating because um, Spotify, before they tried to do that deal with Rogan, this came out the person that the, I forgot her name, but the the woman that was in charge of this is like, well, is there a way for us to say? Like, can we replace Joe? There's no one who has an audience his size, right? Uh, but can we replace him with like maybe five that are similar and like we'll kind of package it up and it like replaces them. And so they ran this test and like, no, we have to back up the truck. And like, there's only one Joe Rogan. And so if you would even ask Joe, like, why is your podcast so popular? Right. Or like he's it's, he's going to have a hard way describing because he's like, I'm just being me. I'm following my natural interest. And one thing that I always say in this release to Paul Graham, too, is like the most interesting people are the most interested. Right. So like 
uh, like I'm obsessed. My four interests happen to be entrepreneurship, reading, history, and podcasts, right? And some people are always like, hey, what are your favorite podcasts? And they're surprised by one of my favorite podcasts is this podcast called Meat Eater. And this is a guy named Steve Ranella, right? It is an outdoor hunting podcast. I don't hunt. I have nothing against it. Like maybe I will one day, right? But the point was, is like I've read all of Steve's books. He is deeply interested. He has dedicated his entire life to the outdoors and conservation and, and the, his way of life. And his, his, his level of detail that he's able to talk about and the passion is just infectious. So it's like, I'm not even into what you're into, but I just find the fact that you're so into it interesting. So now I'm interested. Dude, my, my housemate, Zach, is the most infectious person when it comes to energy. So you know the, uh, is it motocross? What's the thing that Colin McRae used to do? Rallycross, um, where these guys are flying down dirt tracks at 100 yeah. miles an hour and they've got the co-pilot with them. And there's people that go out to take photos and then they'll usually have a little bit of a crew with them and there'll be these special spots along mm -hmm. the track, presumably ones that are maybe a little bit more safe, not at the corner of bends on the outside of them and stuff yeah. like that. And these guys <laughs> will have gone, it'll be the middle of the night, it'll be pissing cold, it'll be raining, and mm -hmm. they'll stand there to see, and these dudes just are like, Wah! and they'll look at each other, they'll lose their shit. Yeah. And Zach likes to watch that to gas him up before a training session. Like he just gets so yep. infected by other people loving their shit. And yes. uh, this guy, the esports guy, last night, same thing. Fucking loves his loves his shit. Couldn't tell me anything about like Valorant or fucking Rocket League or League of Legends or any of this stuff, but he loves his craft, and that gassed me up to hear him be so passionate. Gassed me up. So that ties into what is the main theme across multiple decades? Because like Paul Graham starts out as a computer programmer, right? Starts this company called Via Web in the late 1990s. Like two months or two years later, sells it to Yahoo for like $50 million, right? Then he's like, well, now I got money for the first time in my life. What should I do? He's like, I should learn how to invest. Starts this thing called Y Combinator. Y Combinator, you know, is the most prestigious startup school ver version of like, if there was a college for entrepreneurship, which is impossible to ever have one, it would look a lot more like Y Combinator or anything else. That invest, invests in you know thousands of companies, winds up becoming a billionaire off of this. And his entire theme relates to this. It's like, what do you like? Who are you as a person? What are you naturally interested in? Jeff Bezos has a great line where he's like, we don't pick our passions, they pick us, right? So Paul starts out like, who you are as a person? Like, what are you into? He's like, I'm really into painting. I'm really into computers. I like reading. He has like this deep historical knowledge of you know English history and everything else. And so he's like, you start out with who you are, then like. What do you actually want to do? Like, how do you find uh, an essay that changed my life that I recommend everybody reads is how to do what you love. Um, and it's like, first of all, find out who you are, then find out like what do you actually love to do. Find a way to, to do what you love, but make sure that it's valuable to other people. Right. And if it, and if you're making something people want, whether it's a podcast, a software program, a service, whatever it is, and you are, you really love to do it, you'll be really good at it. And if you're really good at it, you'll do it for a long period of time. And if you're really good at something you do for a long period of time, that's a you have a high likelihood of getting wealthy. And so that is the main theme. That is why I think it doesn't matter what whether you're working inside of a company, whether you're an entrepreneur, whether you're a podcaster, it doesn't matter. It's like I would read, I'd find Paul Graham's essays and read the ones I Find the ones that you like and then read them over and over again because I think they're extremely powerful. His clarity of thought and the clarity of writing is second to none. There was a internal Apple meeting with Tim Cook and someone asked Tim about whether it should feel like hard work when you do something that you love. And one of my friends was at this internal meeting and he told me what Tim said in, re in response. He said, you'll have to work harder than you ever have before in your life, but the tools will feel light in your hands. Yes. So, so fucking cool. Think about if, if you ask anybody who's the, who has the most drive, 
are who's like the hardest worker you've ever seen. And then one name will pop up over and over again. It's Michael Jordan. Right. And I read uh, not only did I read Michael's autobiography driven from within, but I read this like 700 page biography, which changed my fucking life. And it's called uh, Michael Jordan, uh, The Life, I think, by Roland Lazenby. And what was so fascinating is Michael even says, he's like, everybody talks about how my work ethic and how hard, I, I, how hard a worker I was. They didn't understand. It was all play to me. Like me, I've heard you speak enough where me and you also share love for the, the philosophy and the thinking of Naval Ravikant. Uh, in fact, our mutual friend, the way, the way we connect is Eric Jordanson. And I, at Eric's book, The Almanac of Naval, it's like I give that away. I think I may have bought that more copies of that as like somebody to give away than almost any other book that I could think of. And especially for somebody that doesn't know what to do. They're like, hey, man, I'm, I'm struggling. I don't know like what direction I take in life. I was like, read, read the Almanac Naval. And so Naval has this idea. It's like find work that feels like play. That's also in Paul Graham's essays. And you see it again in Michael Jordan. So it's like, wait a minute, like maybe Naval was influenced by Paul Graham, but Michael Jordan sure as hell wasn't. And yet he arrived at that same conclusion. He's just like, I'm the laziest. And you would see this in his childhood. They're like, man, we couldn't get this guy to clean the kitchen. He couldn't do his homework. But when it came to playing sports, baseball first and then basketball, you couldn't, you, he would never get off the field. And then he'd realize, oh, where am I weak? Then he'd go find, he's like, oh, I need to lift weights or oh, I need to work on my endurance. Oh, I need to find a coach that can actually teach me. And he was just an absolute sponge because it felt like play to him. And that's the whole thing. It's like, it's very difficult to get really world-class, go back to the Joe Rogan. It's just like, what are his, what are the things that he's obsessed with, right? He's obsessed with, and they all interconnect. If you really think about it, it's like he was doing UFC commentary for free when it was nothing, you know? Uh, I wish somebody would write a biography of Dana White because that's a fascinating story that needs to be told. It's like you, 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 you buy this, uh, company so that's almost going into business for two million dollars you blow it up make it a worldwide sport sell it to uh, espn for what four billion dollars or something like that um and then you ask him were you ever gonna quit he's just like uh i love what i do uh, i travel the world i stay at the best restaurants i eat at uh or stay at the best hotels eat at the best restaurants and watch the best fights in the world he's like i'm not even working <laughs> like why like there is nothing to quit like this is there's nothing i'd rather do than this um and so i, I think that that's like you picked up on like that's the key it's like if you really want to be great at something, you have to do it for a long time. And if you don't really love to do it, you're not going to do it for a long time. There was this story I heard about Steffi Graf, German tennis player, like savant when she was still mm -hmm. playing. Uh, and as a kid, they did an assessment of motivation and of uh, technical skill. And some people were coming in high on one and low on the other and so on and so forth. Steffi Graf came back as 10 out of 10 on both. So what you have with this person is not only someone who has the raw talent to be able to beat you, but they're going to continue outworking you. And to them, it's not even going to feel like work. I mean, it feels trite to talk about this now, right? Like no one can beat you at being you. It's very difficult to beat someone that's having fun. Like, you know, how many times do we need to drill this home? But perhaps one more time, like it's Actually, an important I lesson. I have something interesting to say about that because th this is something that I discovered. Cause so, like fundamentally, right. Um, I should back up like, for the podcast so far, I've read, you know, close to 300 biographies of history's greatest entrepreneurs, right? Uh, to even get on Founders Podcast, you have to be so good at your job. Somebody wrote a fucking book about it. Like, that's an insanely high bar, maybe the highest bar that you could possibly have, right? And so every, where everybody thinks it's like, these people must know something we don't, right? It's like, must be super complicated or something. It's like, no, no, no. It's like, they identify the very, the basics, right? They, they identify a handful of things that are important to them. And they repeat them for decade after fucking decade. Jeff Bezos is a great example of this, right? Uh, you can think about it like Jeff Bezos mastered uh, what it means to run a high growth 
technology company on the internet before there were any playbooks, right? Like he essentially wrote the fucking playbook when he started in 97. How many people started uh, an internet company in 97? They're still going today. Like it, he wins by endurance. Let me actually show you something real quick because this is going to tie into it because I forget. But like this is this is uh, my lock screen, right? That is a cover of Ernest Shackleton. This is a fantastic book written by Alfred Lansing called Endurance, right? And the reason I have Ernest motherfucking Shackleton looking at me every time I look up through my phone is because he had a family motto. His family motto was by endurance, we conquer. And so something I've noticed from sitting in a fucking room by myself for four years, seven days a week, reading every single day of my fucking life, I read a biography of an entrepreneur for hours. That's the first thing I do. After I wake up, I, I wake, wake up, work out, and then I read for, for hours. As long as I do that for the rest of my life, I'll get whatever I want out of my life because then I package up what I learn and I put it on a podcast for other people to, to benefit from, right? And so what I notice about these people is just like, Jet, Jet, go back to Jeff Bezos' example, it's like, um, he has, they call them Jeffisms. He has, it's not like he needs to remember 25, 30 different things, right? It's a handful of principles that are very important that he's gonna repeat over and over and over again for decades. So I don't, I understand people say, oh, it's trade to say, do what you love, or it's trade to say that you have to have endurance, it's trade, it's like, no, these are the fundamentals. There's a great conversation that happens between, so I've done, I don't know, uh, two podcasts on Michael Jordan, I've done like uh, two or three on uh, Kobe Bryant, I just read another 600 page biography of Kobe Bryant, right? That one of the last interviews Kobe did, right? This is so fucking important to understand, because you see this in every single domain. One of the last interviews he did right before he died, he talks about that he was on the phone with Michael Jordan, right? And he's like, Michael, he's like, he's watching, uh, unfortunately, the daughter that passed away with him in, in, the, um, in the helicopter crash. He's like, man, I don't really like what their coaches are teaching me. He's like, they're teaching all these 12-year-old kids, like, all this fancy shit. He's like, you know, spin moves and all this other stuff. And he's like, I'm pretty sure I didn't learn this when I was, you know, when I was playing. So I was like, let me call Michael and see what he says, right? So he call, he's calling up Michael. He's like, he's like, hey, man. Um, you know, she explains the story. I think they're, they're teaching these kids way too much fancy stuff. They're not focusing on just mastering the fundamentals on a deep fucking level. And the way to do that is repetition over and over and over again for a long time. And he go, he's like, Michael, what do you think? He goes, he goes, he's like, uh, Michael, what were you learning? Uh, what were you doing in, in uh, basketball, uh, when you were 12? And Michael goes, dude, I was playing baseball. And then Kobe says, I'm pre pretty sure he's being interviewed by Alex Rodriguez, the famous bas uh, baseball player. And he goes, think about that. And his point being, is like the greatest basketball player to ever live. Hadn't even picked up a fucking ball yet. Your 12-year-old does not need to know these spin moves and all this other fancy shit. Focus on the fundamentals. And they do that for on a deep fundamental level for decade after decade after decade. I want to go back to this idea that you and I both share an admiration and love for Charlie Munger. He has this great thing where he's saying, hey, master the big ideas in all these domains. So he has this thing. He says, like, they carry most of the freight, I think is the term he, he, uh, he uh, uses. He inspired me to be like, how can I, what am I learning from, you know, doing this rather unusual work that I do? It's like, my version is like, time carries most of the weight. I just heard, or I saw a tweet that you said, where it's like, you've been doing this podcast 500 and some fucking episodes, right? First of all, you know, as, as, as I do, and we don't have to get into the business podcasting because I'll never shut up about it because I'm completely obsessed, but like, everybody's like, oh, it's too late to start a podcast. There's millions of them. And then you actually look at the data and it's just like, how many of them are producing uh, how many of them, basically how many of them are still producing to this day, have done more than 10 episodes and haven't fucking quit. And it's like a couple hundred thousand. And so my whole point is like, imagine being able to go back on the internet when there's only a couple hundred thousand blogs or a couple hundred thousand websites. And you're telling me it's too fucking late. What are you talking about? That's insane. Cause everybody quits at everything. And the reason I was so interested is like, not only do I respect Eric Jorgensen's opinion a lot, and I find him an extremely sharp and articulate person, but he's like, Chris is the real deal, but I can see that you're the real deal because it's like, 
this dude has done something 500 fucking times. How many people have done that? And then you had said something. It's like, I've been grinding away, trying to get really good at my craft. And I want to talk about this conversation that you had with uh, somebody else I admire, George Mack, which I didn't know his name was George McGill until you said something. I've been following him on Twitter for years. Um, and we've been DMing and stuff because he listens to founders too. But another sharp guy. But um, uh, but the, the, the point I was making is just like, you made the point. It's like, I've been grinding, grinding, grinding. And yet this is something I also... Uh, talk about on the podcast is like you have to stay in the game long enough to get to get lucky because there's an opportunity right that's gonna happen year five six seven that you cannot comprehend in year one two three this is very similar to what jocko said in your conversation he's like i don't have a five-year plan guess what the way jocko talks about the fact that he's optimizes for flexibility uh, and optionality is how all of the best entrepreneurs that have ever lived they talk the exact same way you think that's the case they have this sort of emergent uh, outcome in life there is, I don't know about an emergent outcome, but they definitely optimize for optionality. So there's this guy, um, I don't want to lose the thread real quick. Uh, let me, I'll tell you about Henry Singleton in a minute, but how I like what you said, it's like that one opportunity that you had to grind away at for years and years and you never probably predicted it happened. But once that happens, I think you said you had more downloads in like, you know, a week or whatever than all the years combined. Yeah. That's a perfect fucking example of stay in the game long enough to get lucky. There's a million fucking examples like that in the history of entrepreneurship. You just have to go and read old books to find them. So let me go back to this optionality person. So what I'll do is when I find somebody that's very interesting to me, right? Um, I, what you'll be shocked is, is like how almost none of their ideas are unique to them, right? So like I'm obsessed with Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. Uh, I read all the Warren Buffett shareholder letters. Uh, I read all the biographies I could find about both Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. And when they say, hey, go study this person and they do because they're both obsessive readers they they're both biography nuts uh charlie munger has probably read more biographies than me but i'll think i'll catch him because i got 60 years you know he's got six years so but they what's fascinating is like you find all these great people buried in history and we can talk about why don't don't worry about your legacy and all that other stuff because it's a, a lot of it's fake you would imagine how so few people actually go back and we could talk about uh, some examples in the history of entrepreneurship, but what's fascinating is like Charlie Munger's the one of the wisest people alive, right? And he's like, hey, the smartest person I ever met was this guy named Henry Singleton. I'm like, what the fuck? And he's like, his returns were, uh, he's like, utterly ridiculous. You know how Charlie talks. Then Warren Buffett's like, you guys need to go back and read about Henry Singleton. <clears throat> he built a conglomerate very similar to Berkshire, but like 20 years earlier, right? And they're like, Warren says, hey, it's a crime that American business schools don't study this guy. So wait a minute, so let's pause right there. You have how many people on the planet have studied more entrepreneurs and more businesses than Warren Buffett? A tiny, he might, you know, have studied more than anybody else. And this, and he's telling you, yo, this is the guy. Go fucking pay attention to this guy. And then he says some shit like, hey, if you add up the top 100 business school graduates, uh, MBA graduates ever, uh, their record, and, and then compile their record together, it'd still be inferior to Henry Singleton. So then you go and you read there's not a lot of material on Singleton, but I read everything I could find. And I did an, uh, a podcast on this book called The Outsiders, which is one of the very few books that profiles what, what made Singleton so, it, uh, so interesting. And I absolutely flipped my shit because all the ideas that I thought were Buffett's, a lot of them came from Singleton. And to me, that's inspiring because it's like I, don't, I, can, I can thrive and be wildly successful and I don't need one single original idea of my own. I just need to master what uh, what some of the best people in history have already figured out for me. And then you could pick up the book and in, you know, 10, 15, 20 hours, you get the distillation of a career and lessons they had to figure out over 40, 50 years. That's absolutely insane. So Henry Singleton's like, listen, he has got this famous quote. Uh, he's like, you know, everybody has a, a lot of, especially in the 1960s, 70s. 
there was this theory that you need like a five-year plan, you need a 10-year plan, you need to have all these projections. He's like, the world is so much more complex than that. He's like, and we have so little control over outside things. So he's like, I like to steer the boat every day. He's like, my only plan, you know what his fucking plan was? Same plan as Jocko. I'm going to show up every day, go to work, and I'm going to steer the boat a little bit, like in one direction. And I'll go and I'll try something. And if it works, I'll do what Jocko said. I'll do more of it. Oh, it didn't work. I'll stop doing that. That's fine. And I love what he made, the point he made on your episode, which was fantastic, uh, which was, hey, if you asked me six years ago what my five-year plan was, he's like, I didn't have a podcast. And then all the stuff, he's like, hey, podcast blows up. He sells all these books. Now they'll be turning into movies. He's got his manufacturing company. He's I, Yesterday, I came back just for this, by the way. Uh, I was out of town for Thanksgiving, and I was like, sorry, I'm leaving. I have to go record with Chris tomorrow. And so all the way, I, I, did, I had to do this like four and a half hour drive yesterday, and I'm just sh- slamming Jocko Goes because all the Starbucks are closed on Thanksgiving Day. <laughs> Jocko so Goes are legit, man. I was really, really impressed with him. The only things that are open are the Wawa's, and Jocko has made a huge influence on my life. And I'm not an energy drink person. I'm a stressor person like all day long. But I was like, fuck Monster. You've never done anything for me. It's like Jocko's given me hundreds of hours of fantastic content. His, I, I don't read a lot of books that are not biographies, but his book, Extreme Ownership, is the be, to me the best, single best book on leadership that I've ever read. And I was like, I'm loading up on Jocko Goes. So I just slamming him down as I went by. But yeah, so what I saw with Jocko, I saw uh, even uh, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger saying the same thing. He's like, we don't have a master plan. He's like, we're going to, the opportunities are going to come in. A lot of them we can't predict. We're going to say, hey, do we want to pursue this opportunity or not? And why, why, why I think that's reassuring to people is that I struggled. I was one of those people that didn't have a very good plan. If you would say, what do you want written on your obituary? What, what, where would you like to see yourself in 25 years? That's something I've always struggled with. And yet, because I came from a productivity efficiency background, at least when I first started this show, that was one of the things that I was obsessed with. I always felt like, a, I don't know, a little bit of a fraud because I didn't have that as it was laid out. And <clears throat> I think that you're right. Understanding principles and allowing things to be directed from there each day, one step at a time permits you to have enough optionality to take advantage of good opportunities when they come to you. But it is important to have the principles. I think without an understanding of what it is that I need to be doing, consistency, enthusiasm, discipline, ensuring that I fall, I I continue doing the good stuff, whatever the things are that facilitate your performance, those need to continue. But you don't necessarily need to have the plan all the way out. So when it comes to looking at all of the guys and girls that you've studied from history, what are the most common threads in terms of personality types, the ways that they show up that all of the high performers have had? So it's not it's funny because I've been approached by a couple of publishers and like, hey, why don't you write a book on like the top 10 traits? I'm like, fuck you. Like it, it, if you think about it, like the world is much more complex than that. And what we're doing, right? Like a podcast is a business. It's a form of entrepreneurship, like <clears throat> entrepreneurship done at the highest levels yields the greatest financial results in the world, right? There is no formula possible. So the way I look at it is uh, same way where like um, when I just reread this the 600 page biography of Kobe Bryant, like you would go to his house at like 17 years old and like you'd open the closet and it'd be VHS tapes of Michael Jordan, of all these different Magic Johnson, all these other people. His girlfriend, his high school girlfriend in that book is gives its interview and she's like, what was it like to date Kobe Bryant in high school? She's like, well, a lot of Saturday nights at his house watching tapes of Michael Jordan. Right. So the way I think about it is like reading biographies of history's greatest entrepreneurs is one, all of history's greatest entrepreneurs did this. The more biographies you read, right, the more you realize that people live lives so remarkable that somebody wrote a book about them, all read biographies. Like it is, you can read other things and you should read other things, but I don't think uh, you can have a complete human life without reading biographies consistently. You know, uh, the way I always say is like, 
if I, I like people are like, how should I use founders podcast? Cause now there's like 400, over 400 hours. And like I add to it constantly. It's like, f- listen to an episode, find one book that you like, read one biography uh, a month, right? Uh, this is like the minimum like requirement, in my opinion, read one biography a month and then listen to two episodes a week. It, that means after a year, you would have downloaded key insights and lessons from 100 different history schools every year. And then you got to go deeper because my episodes are only an hour, maybe 90 minutes. It's like these books take me for every one hour of audio that I create, I'm reading at least 20 hours. Like this is not a fucking game to me. Like I take this dead, dead seriously, just like history's greatest entrepreneurs do. So one thing I, I would say, like one trait all, like that a lot of them have is the importance of practice. Um, and so there's this maxim that I repeat over and over again, that the public praises people for what they practice in private. The public praises people for what they practice in private. I repeat that to me over and over again. And I mentioned earlier, I was like, how, why did this guy say that reading a biography of Michael Jordan changed his life? Like, what the hell does it like? That sounds silly to me. Like, how could that possibly be true? And there's this one story in there that I thought was so fucking remarkable because it talks about the difference even at the highest level. So to get into the NBA, there's like, what, 400 NBA players total, right? Out of millions of kids that want to do it and have maybe have tempted to do it. Then you get to like the all-star and maybe you have, you know, 24. Now the 400 down to 24. Then in 1992, Jordan is invited to play on the dream team in the Olympics, right? He, uh, so now you have 12, like he, you can't get higher than where he's at. And he was thinking about not doing it. Cause he's like, I've been in the playoffs. We were winning championships. He's winning every single award he could possibly have. He's at the top of his game, but he's like, I'm going to do it. Even though my body's beat up because these are the best basketball players in the world. Right. And I want to see their practice habits. So the main, the reason I say that business, uh, that book changed my life is because Jordan says he'd rather miss a game than miss practice. And so he gets there and I get goosebumps. I already have goosebumps because I know where the story's going to end. And he gets there and he sees the practice habits of the other people in the dream team, which they are at the top of their class uh, of their profession, but he's winning more championships than them. He's had his accolades are just better than he's at, he's the very top. And he said something that fucking changed my life. And he said that they were deceiving themselves about what the game required. And so that from there, how I apply it to my work is like, I'm going to work on the podcast seven days a week. I'm going to read uh, biographies for uh, for hours and hours every morning. When I'm done, I store all of my highlights uh, and my notes in this app called Readwise. I have over 20,000 highlights and notes from all the books I read. And so what, what's my, my second half of my day is fucking practice, which is now rereading. It's not good enough that I read a book a year and a half ago. That's not fucking good enough, dude. You're asking people to spend an hour and a half of their time with you in their ear. So I have to make sure that I am not only like I have to live this stuff every single day. I was just invited to speak at a company. It's a private investment company. It's 93 years old. The CEO of the company's successful founders. They have $250 billion of assets under management. And the CEO, me and him get on the Zoom beforehand. Uh, they're having a company offsite with like 40 to 60 other partners. And he's like, hey, do we want an outline or whatever the case is? I go, I'm perpetually prepared. I promise you, I will show up. You can ask me whatever the fuck you want and I will know it backwards and forwards. And he's like, why? And I explain my, like, I go, I got this idea from Michael Jordan and then I'm not fucking playing basketball over here. I'm making podcasts and reading books. But this, the principle is the same thing. So let me tie this to one of history's greatest entrepreneurs, Sam Walton, right? If you think about how fucking crazy Sam Walton's story is, that dude started out in retail when he was like in his early 20s, right? Doesn't hit it for like 25 years. He was like 44 when he founded Walmart, right? But he wasn't like lollygagging. He was like working at different forms of retail. He was just having to go through that experimentation, the time carries most weight thing, right? And so he had this idea for Walmart. He was under finance and his idea was, hey, uh, all the big retailers in the big cities, I'm going to see if I can build these stores that are far out in rural America, right? In t- towns of 8,000, 10,000, 15,000 people, right? Uh, I'm going to pick cheap real estate. 
and I'm only going to compute on price. His th the thesis behind Walmart, which if you think about this, the thesis was proved correct. As a result this of his thesis being proven correct, he generated one of the largest fortunes the world has ever seen. His fucking kids are still like if you combine all of Walmart's kids like uh, like his descendants into he split it up. Right. But if it was like one person, they'd be the richest one, of the, if not the richest person in the world. Right. Um, and that idea came from this is just like, well, I think there's an opportunity here that no one else is pursuing. I have a hypothesis. Let me test it. He didn't have money. He goes to uh, it was a this thing called Ben Franklin stores, which is I, I might be getting the name of the company wrong, but it was essentially like uh, uh, early franchise uh, a, a headquarters that would franchise uh, you could buy retail franchises from them and Sam was running one of those and he pitched him on the deal and they're like no, no no we don't want to do this that was a Friday the next day the guy that told him no goes to his local Kmart right just to go shopping for whatever because Kmart was a giant company and he hears this voice he's like what the fuck why is that voice sound so familiar and it's Sam Walton in there in Kmart with his notebook which he would go Sam Walton went in more his version of practice is going in more retail stores than anybody in history his kids talk about this. He's like, it doesn't matter if we're in Europe on vacation, we're anywhere, any vacation. He's like, we have to stop and dad has to look at his stores every day. And so this guy that had just turned him down from one of the best opportunities, which turns into Walmart, right? So he fucked this up. He just said no to the best opportunity of his life. Sees Sam Walton talking. He's like, okay, how do you guys do inventory? Okay, why is this price this way? Taking notes on a Saturday morning. That's his version of professional practice. And I saw somebody tweet about this and um, they're like, imagine competing with Sam Walton. And so the way I look at it is like when you're reading these biographies, when you're picking up these ideas, you might read a 400 page book or you might listen to an hour and a half of my podcast to pick out one or two ideas, but those ideas will stick with you forever. And then you can figure out how that applies to your actual craft. No one goes back to the, the Henry Singleton thing. You, you mentioned something I, I wanted to jump on where it's just like none of this works if you don't work yourself in a position to trust your own judgment. As a podcaster, as an entrepreneur, as an investor who obviously I, I, these are the people I make my podcast for primarily, right? If you can't trust your own judgment, you were just saying you used to have a business partner. Now you're top of the heap. It's what you'll also see. Paul Graham talks about. It's like founders talk. They, they realize like other founders outside their company. And Paul talks about this essays have a more of an understanding of what they're going through than their employees. They can't talk to their employees. Really. You also have uh, you and I have a gift where the easiest way to make friends is to have a podcast. And then you listen to other people's podcasts and now you're friends. <laughs> so like you can talk to other people. Um, so. Those are just some of the ideas. I don't want to keep rambling, but those are just some of the ideas that appear over and over again. It's like the importance of practice. It's like uh, the un unbelievable amount of dedication. Jocko said that uh, on his podcast. It's like how many uh, – I, I heard him say something on a, uh, an Instagram Live one time that just made me laugh. And you know, he's like looking at his phone like reading the questions. And they're like, how many hours a week do you work? He goes, all of them. <laughs> it's that kind of thing because even if they're not physically – even if Sam Walton's not physically working at his business, he's thinking about it. That is a form of work. So that to me is obsession. And obsession's not necessarily a bad thing. I would have said one of the most common threads that I've seen amongst high performers that I've had on the show is obsession. You could argue that that might be compulsion uh, by a different lens. Do you think on average that the people that you've studied from history were happier than the average person? That is a great question. I think for a large percentage of them, happiness is besides the point. So this is, we, we can That's not segue. the question though. Go ahead, go, say the, it the again. The question then. is, on average, do you think the people that you studied from history were happier than the average person? Yes. This is the reason why, even if they're not over. First of all, I, 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 I think you were talking about this with Ryan Holiday, 
which is like there is no evolutionary point to be satisfied or to be happy or like a finish line, which I think is uh, a big mistake. People are always like the hedonic treadmill. It's like people are always chasing after something. They get it and they don't understand why they're not content. So I, it's like something that I don't even worry about anymore. I just do what I want to do every day. And it's just like I know I'm always going to a 10 or 20 percent of my life is always going to be discontent somehow, you know, as a driven person trying to build a business. Like if you're content, you wouldn't do anything. Um, the reason I would say they might be happier, though, is because a lot of people think entrepreneurs are motivated by money. Right. And the money, obviously, you know, Jeff Bezos likes probably likes his 200 billion dollars, probably feels really good. Right. But I, it's very clear. It's like they're motivated by control and independence. They want control on how they spend their time. Like business building is world building. Right. You're able to build a, the, a world within your world. Like in your in your and I case. Right. We get to choose what, what we're going to do when we wake up tomorrow. You get to choose who you speak to. You get to choose. You have complete control over people around you. I have friends, man, that even if they like their job, they hate some of their coworkers. Imagine how unnatural that is from an evolutionary perspective to spend half of your waking time around people you dislike or don't trust. Like so, and to that degree, I think because they have control, and they, and Sam Wallen's case, he's like, I had fun. You know, that's was, was, one of my favorite quotes of his. Is like, most people don't enjoy what they do. I, like, I really enjoyed it. And he wrote those words when he knew he was dying of cancer. He had cancer all over his body. He knew he was dying. And he's looking back. He's like, no, I, there, I, there's very few things that would change. The ending of Phil Knight's uh, founder of Nike, his, he has a fantastic uh, uh, autobiography called Shoe Dog. What was crazy is that talks about like the, he, he has this dream, right, of he has this goal he wants to do, this idea he wants to do. And then that book, every chapter is a year, goes in, in chronological order and it ends with the IPO of Nike. And the crazy thing is this guy overnight, you know, now he's worth $175 million overnight. He's like, this is amazing. And then he gets in the book. He's like, what do I wish? He goes, oh, my God, I wish I could do it again. Like, I wish I could go back and literally redo this. And now he's writing those words as a 70 year old man. He knows like there is no time for that. That's not going to happen. Um, so, yeah, they may be happier than the average person because they have more autonomy and control over what they're doing. But these are not like I don't even know if they're it, it's possible for many of them to be, quote unquote, happy. Yeah, I can't. So. The common, like the answer that I would usually give when people ask about high performers, I had uh, the performance coach, Michael Gervais, who was the guy that looked after Felix Baumgartner's psychological training for him to jump from the edge of space, oh, had, had him on the show. Uh, and Felix, yeah. was, Felix was struggling. He had claustrophobia when he got inside of this suit and there was pressure. Michael was brought in to coach him back out of that. And I asked Michael, on average, do you think that the highest performers in the world are happier or, or more miserable uh, and his opinion was that they're more miserable and the reason that he gave was that a lot of people that are high performers are driven by a sense of insufficiency that they're looking to achieve success in the outside world to fill a void which is inside of them and that is a common thread that i've seen with people that i have spoken to that i've worked with i've been around um but i'm also perfectly open to hearing from you someone that's been exposed to tens of thousands of hours of intimate connection with some of the most smart and successful people from history, that that might not be the case. Um, I do think a lot about whether people are sacrificing the thing that they want in order to achieve the thing which is supposed to get the thing they want. So for instance, a lot of people would consider that being successful might make them happy. And in order to be successful, they will sacrifice happiness in the short term. And you go, okay, so you have an equation here where if all that you do is remove success from both sides, i.e. the strive, 
what you're left with is just happiness. And it's that story about the fisherman, the guy that goes down to yep. see the fisherman, and he says, you could build this up into a business, and then if you built the business so big, all that you would be able to do would be a fish all day. And he goes, well, that's what I do right now. And I do wonder <laughs> how many people uh, are the fishermen. Uh, sorry, are the businessmen going to see the fisherman looking at him and saying, look, there, there is there is a void inside of me that can be filled by success in the outside world and the success will ultimately lead to happiness. The problem is that we look at the modern world through such a narrow band, a narrow domain of competence. You saw this with, uh, who's the dude that did Fire Festival? Oh, the one that went to jail? Yeah, him, that guy. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I, yeah. The, the only reason that people don't like that guy, and it's a hilarious story, is because the event didn't succeed. If yeah. he'd had different weather, if he'd had different beds, if he'd managed to get the the tents to look even remotely okay, he would have mm-hmm. been hailed as the greatest event promoter of the last few decades, right? It would have been the greatest thing since Woodstock. Yeah. Uh, the only difference is that he didn't get the outcome that he expected. Well, hang on a second. People aren't pointing the finger at him because he didn't get the outcome when it failed. They're pointing at him for these unethical business practices in the lead up to it. So what that suggests is that the ends always justify the means to people. Do you understand where I'm coming from here? I do. Yeah. Yeah, really, really interesting. That, that I always think about that fire Festival guy whose name I can't remember. Uh, and I, I would say one thing that is a little different with the people that I study is a lot of the people have like a means to an end, right? So the, the, the great uh, benefit, like one of my favorite things like that I get to do is like profession is like, so I spend a lot of my time having one-sided conversations with dead entrepreneurs because I prefer to study dead entrepreneurs. I really don't focus on entrepreneurs now, but then that those lessons attract people building modern-day founders. And so then I get to meet them through the podcast and become friends with them. And the ones that are the most successful are it's like, there's no means, like for me, it's like podcasting is not a means to an end. It is the end. The idea that like anybody in the world, like there's podcasting is an open protocol. It essentially gives you the ability to have an on-demand radio show, right? About anything that you want that anybody can access. You can talk about whatever you want and that anybody can access all over the world. Like that, there's nothing better to me. Like th- this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. And that idea, it's like, there. I always say, it's like they're going to have to pry the microphone from my cold, dead hands. You're out of your fucking mind if you think I'm going to, like I'm never going to stop doing this. And what the people that I admire the most is like they found what they wanted to do. Sam Walton, I just mentioned him, right? Another one of my entrepreneurial heroes, Enzo Ferrari. Okay. Everybody knows Ferrari, the brand, right? Very few people know Enzo, the actual person. Now, as an individual person, don't like him at all. He was misogynistic, uh, didn't really only didn't care any about, about anybody but himself and his son. And then his son winds up passing away, unfortunately, right? But I admire his dedication. He's one of history's greatest obsessives. He worked on building his business, Ferrari. He worked 12 days a week, seven days. A, I'm not saying to do this, by the way. I'm just saying like he was completely obsessed. He had... He, this is what he chose to do for his life. And as a result, anytime you see a brand that has been around for a long time that usually stands for high quality, whether it's like Ferrari, uh, the, the founding engineer of Rolls-Royce, same thing, uh, Apple, you always have, you could, uh, Estee Lauder, Coco Chanel, you trace Sam Walton, you trace it back to like this one obsessive founder. Mm-hmm. Right. It's that obsession. Was doing, I, I, that I, was, I, was, yeah, that was doing things not for, it was, it was like, yes, they wanted to get wealthy and they all got wealthy. But they made way, they went decades after. They kept working decades after they needed money. And in case of like Coco Chanel, Coco Chanel worked, she died when she was like 87. She was working on her last, she was still working on her latest, like uh, like her latest fashion show, her latest fashion line, the year thing, I forgot what they call. Uh, S.A. Lauder worked on her company until she died. Sam Walton worked on his company until she died. Uh, 
Steve Jobs, same thing. Um, Is there something sad about that, though, that a lot of these people have got families? You know, they could have spent more time with their kids. They could have spent more time connecting with the people that they care about. This is my concern with unfettered, complete blue sky ambition and ruthlessness that it, I worry that it sets a trend for people to believe that they need to go searching outside of simple lives, simple lives in order to achieve something that they that will fulfill them when what it is that they're looking for is right in front of them. Like these people are unbelievably ambitious. They're very obsessed. And what that leads them to do is to engineer a life which allows them to manifest that obsession. And it may be one of the greatest things for this particular person to go and do. Enzo Ferrari may have been built to create cars, probably was, but would his life in retrospect have been better had he have spent more time with his kids? Would his kids' lives have been better had he had spent more time with his children. I don't know if he had kids. My point being, like, looking at it through the lens of how do I maximize impact in the world, whether it be legacy, whether it be growth, whether it be money. And it's often not just the cash, as you've said, it's people continue after that. And you go, okay, well, like, what are you doing this for? You're doing this in pursuit of the pursuit itself. Cool. Great. Is that all that there is to life? Is a bigger question. So out of every single person that I've ever studied, they have all over-optimized their professional life at the detriment of their personal life by far. There is one lone exception to this. Uh, It is episode 222. It's this guy named Ed Thorpe. He is, the title in the fucking podcast I made is My Blueprint for Life, right? And um, he's got a fantastic autobiography. I recommend everybody read it. It's called A Man for All Markets. Um, Nassim Taleb wrote the forward, and you can actually read the forward for free on Nassim's website, which is fantastic and he outlines why ed thorpe is so unique now i have to preface this ed thorpe is a genius way smarter than i am by far way smarter than i'll ever be i could read ten thousand books i'll never be as smart as that guy right so what ed thorpe realized is like enough when enough was enough so he identified a handful of things that were really important to him he's like i want to get wealthy right i want to have work that's intellectually stimulating i want to be a good father i want to be a good husband and i want to take care of my health and i want to have fun i want to treat life like the adventure it is there. Tim Ferriss just is this fantastic. He's still alive, right? You can go, Tim Ferriss did a two part interview with Ed Thorpe recently. You can listen to it, but I recommend seeing it on YouTube because let's start with the health thing, which I know you're into as well, right? Um, I sent that video to a ton of people. I was like, tell me how old you think that guy in that video is. And everybody's like, I don't know, 65. I was like, he's 90, he's 90. And so what the genius in Ed Thorpe is like, he had uh, a few simple systems and simple rules to guide his entire life. So he got into physical fitness when he was a really young man. I think he was in college, right? Which is extremely rare, you know, 60 something, 70 years ago. And what he realized is like, um, every hour I spend in the working out is one less day I'll spend in the hospital at the end of my life. And he dedicated himself to eating healthy, to taking care of, uh, of his physical fitness. And that's why he looks the way he does. He has actually a simple system I, I, I use in that book where he gets up every morning, obviously go to the bathroom and then he weighs himself. And the reason he does that is like, it's impossible for me to get like it. He has tight food feedback loops for everything. He's just like, you're going to know when, oh, it's like I lost a couple pounds. I can eat a little bit more today or, oh, I can have that dessert or whatever. It's like a very simple feedback loop, right? He was the inventor of the first quantitative hedge fund. Okay. Uh, he, he would turn down after he got independently wealthy and it was all like, uh, something that he found intellectually stimulating. He had unbelievable amounts of business opportunities to come to the door. And his whole point is like, even if I'm not a billionaire, I have hundreds of millions of dollars. 
I have this giant house in Newport Beach, California, right? Uh, I have more money than I'll ever spend. Why would I take time away from my raising my sons, uh, spending time with my wife, uh, having fun to go chase more money? Something's wrong with me if I'm doing that. Now, if I happen to be uh, intellectually stimulated and I find what I'm doing fun, then I'll go do that. But it was like invest in oil tankers or stuff like that. He's like, I don't give a shit about any of that. Um, he writes the book after his wife dies of cancer and he talks about, he's like, they were married for 50 years. He's like, we spent, he goes, I went home every day and had lunch with my wife. He's like, I worked 40 hours a week, right? Like he was not a compulsive workaholic, like a Steve jobs or an Enzo Ferrari or Jeff Bezos, whatever the case is. Uh, he has great relationships with his sons and he might have a daughter too. And now their kids where, uh, the founder of Ikea, right? Which is a fa fascinating story. It's called Ing his name's Ingvar Kamprad. He started Ikea when he's like 14, worked on it till he's like 87. Right. And he has a line in his autobiography that fucking gives me the chills. And this is something I have two kids, so I'm not fucking this up. And he says, uh, he goes, I sacrificed the relationship with my three sons. I missed my three sons growing up to build Ikea. And he's like, don't do this. And he says a line, he goes, childhood does not allow itself to be reconquered. That is a very common mistake at the end of a lot of these autobiographies and biographies. It's like, I didn't, I missed my kid's childhood and I, you can't get that back. And I fucked it, fucked that up. Right. Um, let me go back to Ed Dorp. And then I want to tell you about this guy, Larry Miller, who wrote a book that I think everybody should read. It's called Driven, an autobiography. He was the richest entrepreneur in Utah, had a 30,000 square foot looking, uh, 30,000 square foot house overlooking Utah, owned 93 different companies. He's writing the book as he's dying. And he's like, my life is a cautionary tale. I didn't have fun. I didn't take care of my health. He owned the Utah Jazz. Go look up Larry Miller, Utah Jazz. You see this obese man sitting there on in one of those, you know, scooters or whatever, like the that people like can't walk. Like a little walk. rascal. Yeah, yeah. Like, so I'm, I'm going to run down what he said too because I think that that's valuable even if people don't read the book. Let's go back to uh, Ed Dorp. So then he he builds this wonderful business, right? He meets. He he has he lives a life adventure. He winds up having dinner or uh, he has dinner. They're both in their late 30s with a 38 year old Warren Buffett. Right. He has dinner, leaves the dinner. They want to be friends. He leaves the dinner, turns to his wife and she, he goes, he's going to be the richest man in America one day. Imagine being able like everybody sees Warren Buffett now. It's like this old guy, you know, kind of chubby or whatever, eating fucking Diet Coke and McDonald's and stuff. But like I always like what I always do is like when I'm studying somebody, it's like I'll write in a book. It's like I want to know when were they born. And then as I work my way through the book, I look at the years like how old is that person? What were they thinking when they're 25? I'm in my late 30s. Like what were they? What were they doing when they were my age? It's like we we know the older version of them, but it's the younger version that built the, their empire. It's like, what did that person look like? You can see what Warren looked like when he was he had hair, he had glasses, he dressed nicely. He looked he was like a sharp looking dude. Charlie Munger, too. Um, he winds up being the first LP in uh, Citadel, which is like one of the largest funds in the world. So my point is, like, the guy had all these interesting. Uh, he built the world's first wearable computer with Claude Shannon, the father of information theory. Uh, he uh, uh, Dorp invented card counting for blackjack when you know ones and zeros and all that stuff he he's the one that invented the system writes a book in the 1960s called beat the dealer sells millions of copies this is my blueprint because it's like yeah uh he was smart as hell he made a lot of money but he was good he was a good friend he was a good father he's a good uh husband he took care of his health and then he had fun you wouldn't believe how many of these people get to the end of their life and it's like oh shit i didn't make any time for fun and that's not how I think it was like D Hawk is the founder of Visa. He just passed away. He's 90, I think he was 93 years old, a very wise person. He, he turned his back. He, he, uh, he created Visa, ran it for like 15 years. And he's like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't give a shit about money. And he goes and like works the land. He'd wake up in the morning at five in the morning, right? He was obsessed with reading and writing. Like almost all these people are and would write a thousand words. Then he'd go out and spend the, his day working the land, 
physically restoring the health of the land he bought is somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. So he says something was fantastic. He's like, life is a magical odyssey to be experienced. And that's where um, I, I don't I hope people realize like when you read these books, yes, you celebrate their accomplishments. But the reason that you re- need to read biographies over business books is the human element. They get to the end and they'll tell you, don't do this. What's or, the price yes, that they paid for that? Yes. And so we go to Larry Miller, driven. Uh, it's called Driven, an autobiography by Larry Miller, right? And this guy, you know, raised in fucked up situation. His, he, like, he'd get in a fight with his mom, and his mom didn't know how to deal with him, so she'd call the cops. She put her son in jail over and over and over again. Then eventually kicks him out, right? And so he's got no education, no skill set. He is working in, as, in a parts department of a car dealership. I think he's like 25 or maybe 30 years old, and he just fucking snaps. And he's like, he had a fanatical desire to achieve something. And so then he just starts working literally. He's like, if my eyes are open, I'm working, right? Winds up building over the next 30 years, doesn't take care of himself at all. Uh, he's, they said it, if you lived in Utah, it'd be impossible not to, uh, it was impossible for an average Utah citizen to not spend money in one of his businesses. So he owned car dealerships and movie theaters and the Utah Jazz and all this stuff, right? Didn't take care of his health, didn't know his kids, didn't know his wife, uh, gets to the end of his life. It's like they're having to cut off his fingers and his hands because of poor circulation. He's like obese, really like disgusting. He's writing the book as a cautionary tale, right? And he says, "Listen, uh, if I could do it all over again, I would have like stopped. You know, I, w- I I would still try to get rich, but I would have, you know, maybe instead of making you know hundreds of millions, maybe makes ten million or twenty million, whatever the case is. But the most devastating part is like, if I could do it all over again, I wouldn't have missed my my kids growing up, and I would have had fun." And I'm like, what is the point of living in a 30,000 square foot house owning a fucking NBA team and you didn't even have fun? Then the co-author, he dies in the middle of the book, right? As he's trying to write this book, his co-author is interviewing his wife and she says the most devastating thing, that if my family said about this me, uh, about me, I don't care if I have a billion dollars, I'm a fucking failure. And she goes, I miss him, but it's not like he was here when he was alive anyways. Dude. Yeah. So that's the power. When you read a book like that, um, you get to the end. It's like, I'm not going out like that. You, you either, you either have the, but let's go back to our mutual love for, for Charlie Munger. He says, it's like, he quotes Cicero where he's like a man that doesn't, uh, know what took place before him. It's like, goes through life like a baby. He's like, if you don't learn, if you, if you are only capable of learning through your own experience, which most of humans are, right? It's very hard to learn through the experience of other people. It's like, you're going to have a rough go at life. You will not uh, have a great life. What you okay. will probably be able to do would be learn from the experience of other people that are similar to your sort of age cohort, right? Like you're going to be around most of your friends. Oh, what did you do? Oh, I tried this thing with my business. I tried this new strategy for getting up early in the morning. I went to bed and took this supplement, did whatever. You don't get to do what people who have got to the end of life and then subjectively looked back and told you, this is what I would have done if in retrospect I had lived a life worth living. That's what you're optimizing for. I think there's a like a really, really strong case to be made that a good life is one which in retrospect you're glad that you lived. There is some elements of that that you miss off, particularly the hedonic stuff. Like you don't, you don't embrace um, more hedonic pleasure in retrospect, and yet it does provide you pleasure in the moment. And that's a little bit of a paradox uh, or maybe yeah. a, a dichotomy to be managed rather than a paradox to be solved, as Hormozzi mm-hmm. says. Um, but I think that especially if you're the sort of person that's listening to this show, that listens to your show, you're going to be a bit more ruminative. You're going to do introspection. You're going to consider, why am I here? Am I adding value? 
you need to optimize your life to be one which in retrospect you feel good about because not only will that probably be things that are good for you both in the moment and in future but in the future it's like a gift that you give yourself you get to accumulate all of these senses and feelings of goodwill and of achievement in a holistic organic ecological view it's wholesale right it's everything it's not just this narrow domain it's everything and that's why it's so important to be able to have a clear view of your life because I wonder how many of these people, maybe some of them in the autobiographies, are still retreating to their own inner citadel, which is, I am happy that I achieved this much. I am happy that the business did all of these things because the temptation to open up the lid of looking at what they maybe missed would be so catastrophic, especially as you're perhaps a bit more frail at the end of your life, would destroy them. I'm glad you brought that up because one of my favorite ideas that I've ever come across from any book and it ties to the last part of the, the, your sentence there, was <clears throat> Jeff Bezos has this thing called the regret minimization framework, which is like this nerdy way to just to describe how can you get to the end of your life with the least amount of regrets possible, right? And so he is in, people like don't, like they, they know, like I think it should be obvious that Jeff's super, like super smart, but he's like genius level smart. And so even way before he started uh, Amazon, he's working for this quantitative hedge fund in uh, New York City called D.E. Shaw. Uh, all right. Yeah, I think I can't remember if the the guy, the founder is D. Shaw, the actual fund is D. Uh, D. Shaw. But anyways, it's run by this like quantitative, brilliant billionaire, right? Jeff is making a ton of money. He's got this beautiful apartment in Manhattan, and he sees he's doing research for something. He sees that how fast the internet's growing. This is like the mid nineteen, this is like ninety five, ninety six. He's like, oh my god. He's like, things just don't grow this fast. Like this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I want to take part of this, and so he can't get this idea out of his mind. And, but all the external things is like, no, Jeff, you're already successful. Like, like if you can't leave now, what about your bonus? And so he's like, he goes to his boss and they go for a long walk in, um, in, uh, central park for like two or three hours. Cause his boss is trying to talk him out of not quitting. Cause in the code name for what turns into Amazon inside the hedge fund was called the everything store. Like that is why the biography by Brad Stone is called the everything store. And so Jeff, Jeff's like, I, I think I want to take a risk, quit a job while I can still do this. And like try to play a role in what I feel is going to be uh, a life like a, 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 an earth changing time, which is like the birth of the Internet, which obviously has changed our entire life. The idea of me and you even connecting could not have happened without the Internet. Right. And so they take a long walk. He's like and his, his boss, like, you know, you stay here. You're going to be rich. You, you have this big bonus. And he's like, I'm going to go home and sleep on this. And he says, he's like, I struggle with this decision until I figured out the regret minimization framework. He's like, 27 or 28-year-old Jeff Bezos is not capable of making this decision. This decision. But 80-year-old Jeff Bezos is capable of making this decision. So he, he tried to view his life looking back. And he's like, when you're on your deathbed in your 80s or hopefully 90s or whatever it is, you're surrounded by the ones you love, you're going to be telling yourself the story of your life. And that person is not going to say, they're not going to give two shits that you, that you quit your job and you don't get your quarterly bonus, right? But what they would give a shit is like you had a chance to play a role in the birth of the internet, right? The way Jeff thinks about internet is the way I think about podcasting. And I think like you also as well. It's like, like we're at the very beginning of the industry. We have a role to play here. Like this is amazing. I don't want to do anything else but focus on this. And so he goes, once you make, once you look at it in that, in that once I looked at it in uh, that framework, he's like, it, the decision was easy. He's like, jump, try to do it. If you try and fail, 80-year-old you is like, good. At least you got off your ass. You took a goddamn risk for once in your life. Good. Try again. But 80-year-old you is like, oh, you were comfortable. 
like you were young and smart and had he had no kids at the time he wasn't even married yet i think i think they eventually got married because she uh she uh mckenzie winds up quitting and driving cross country with him now how does that tie with what you just said because that makes sense right but then here what happens he he starts up with his wife his wife knew him before he was jeff bezos of amazon she helps him build the company that's why she got this huge divorce settlement but now you fast forward he's one of the richest people in the world he's an empire builder complete like alpha nerd right genius guy then he lets his family fall apart now you and i will never know like maybe he's like hey i don't care i just want to sleep around i can get to the best women in the world or whatever maybe that is what makes him happy i don't know but i would i would love to in like these quiet moments does he regret destroying his marriage or not that would be a great question to ask the price that people pay to achieve the things that everybody else desires is a question that endlessly fascinates me. I'm always thinking about it. I'm always thinking about it. Let's go to the other end of the scale. So we've spoken there about some examples of people that have tried to create more holistic um, views of success. Who are some of the most ruthless, ambitious, just stone-cold killers that you've studied? Steve Jobs, to me, is the greatest entrepreneur to ever do it. And it, like a lot of this is subjective. Like, But if you had a Mount Rushmore of history's greatest entrepreneurs, he's got to be. He's like, at least, you, you can't have four other people on there that's not him, right? And the sad part about the fact that he was um, – I, I just like the, like the quality of his thinking, the clarity of his thinking, the fact that he started the company. The first sale Apple ever made was made barefoot. Like he walks into the bite shop in Palo Alto – or maybe Menlo Park, I can't remember exactly where it was, and he makes apples for sale, and he doesn't have shoes on. He doesn't take baths. He, like, he was completely like an inner scorecard person. There's this idea that I learned from um, reading uh, th this book called The Snowball, which is like the most well-known biography of Warren Buffett, and he talks about, he's like, it's very hard to have a, a happy life if you, if you have an outer scorecard as opposed to an inner scorecard. So what does that mean? And he compares his growing up. He had a real bad relationship with his mom, who was all outer scorecard, and yet his dad was his hero. It's all inner scorecard. And what inner scorecard means is like you're doing what you want to do based on how you feel about it, right? Not his mom would make decisions. Should I do, if I do this, what will other people think? And so I also like the writing of Tim Urban from Wait But Why, and he really helped crystallize this. He has this post called like the mammoth or something like that. But essentially it just proves it's like the idea that other people are thinking about you is a myth. People think about themselves and he has like, these little stick drawings. And it's like in our mind, it's like we're in the center and all these people are looking and pointing at us. Right. And then he goes, this is what you think. And this is what happens. Like you're still in the center, but everybody's like looking at their phone or they're, they're worried about other stuff. Right. And so that, to me, it's a very, very freeing. And so he said his dad made decisions based on how he truly thought. He didn't care what the outside world thought, which I think is extremely um, like I, I think like is extremely uh, important. Uh, and I think it is a skill to develop. And his 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 it destroyed like his relationship with his mom. The fact that she wanted to him to make decisions based on like what will other people think. He's like he didn't want to go to college, which was crazy at the time because his dad was a congressman and everything, and he's already owning businesses. He owned like a farm. He had a bunch of stocks. This is like a young Warren Buffett. He's like I, he's like read a hundred books on investing. He's like what what else am I going to learn? And so he they wanted to make him go to uh, uh, go to school or whatever the case is. But what I like about Steve is like Steve is all inner scorecard. He's like he had one obsession. I'm going to make insanely great products. That is a term that he says insanely great products. He says that when he's like 20, says it when he's 30, 40, says it right before he dies. That's how he describes the iPad way before he dies. And so what I respect about him is it's like how the hell do you make great world class products in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, 
2000s and then 2010, right before he died, right? Um, but what's sad is I respect him for what he did professionally, but he says in this, uh, this biography that he's working on as he knows he's dying with Walter Isaacson, and at the end, I recommend, even if you haven't, even if you don't want to read the whole book because it's giant, read the last page, last chapter, or maybe last two chapters where he describes his legacy. So it's like why he did what he did. And then he describes why he's spending his, some of his final days working on a book. And he says something that was devastating to me. He's just like, I wasn't around much and I want my kids to know why I did this. And so like that's completely, he's, his ruthlessness was not, hey, I'm going to be the richest person in the cemetery. He doesn't give two shits about that. He's like, I'm going to make world-class products, right? And I'm going to spend all of my time and energy on my world-class products. And as a result, he's like, where is that time coming from? Time is coming from taking care of his health, spending time with his wife and his kids. Maybe he spent time with his wife. I, that part I don't know. But like, he definitely missed out on you know, some part of his, his kid's life. You looked at the Vanderbilts as well, right? Especially some of the, <laughs> some of the super early ones. I thought about them when it came to ruthlessness. Okay. So this is fantastic. So what I love about what I think is inspiring about the history of entrepreneurship studying it is like there was a Steve Jobs before Steve Jobs, right? His name was Edwin Land. He was the founder of Polaroid. When you th when you hear Steve describe all of his ideas, like, hey, I'm going to build a, a technology company at the, at the intersection of technology and liberal arts. The, Steve would use that. He put a sign with those that intersection on all of his Apple uh, product releases, right? That's not his idea. That he literally took that from Edwin Land. He talked about this guy is my hero. Edwin Land was 70 when when um, Steve Jobs met him. Steve was in his 20s. He talked about how important Edwin Land when, when uh, was in 1980. And as he's dying, he's still talking about the fact that Edwin Land was his hero. Now, you brought up the Vanderbilts. Everybody's like, I get a lot of questions like, okay, there's a Steve Jobs before Steve Jobs. There was a Warren Buffett before Warren Buffett. That's really reassuring, right? There's an Elon Musk before an Elon Musk, right? Um. The, the equivalent to Cornelius Vanderbilt, when you get back in like the robber baron era, right? And I'm about to reread this book because it's so fucking crazy. There is no modern day entrepreneurial equivalent of a Cornelius Vanderbilt, okay? Who I would compare him with is Vladimir Putin, okay? Why do I say that? Because if you could have c converted all of Vanderbilt's assets at the time of his death to cash, he would have controlled one out of every 20 American dollars in circulation. That is fucking crazy. Bezos, everybody at the top of the list is nowhere even on a relative basis on how much currency was actually was at the time. No one's fucking close to that, right? He had sovereign level, state level wealth, just like Putin controls. It's like, oh, it's like, it's not my money. Okay, you're controlling it, buddy. But also because like, you know, maybe uh, Microsoft, uh, Bill Gates and Steve Jobs might fight it out. Uh, Bill Gates and the founder of Google, they might sue each other. They might argue, they may say bad things about each other, right? Uh, if you mess with Cornelius Vanderbilt on a business level, he would try to fucking kill you. That is not hyperbolic. He literally did. There's this great book called Tycoon's War. And it's about this guy. I think his name's William Walker. And William Walker was also a very special person. Like by the time he was like 18 or 20, he graduated. Uh, he had his like master's degree, law degree, and and uh, he was a doctor. Like you know, one of these crazy geniuses winds up taking over a part of Mexico when he was like in his early 20s. Like they were like the people just lived crazier lives back then. Anyways. William Wal uh, Walker also overthrew the government. I think it was Nicaragua and he becomes president of Nicaragua. Right. And, uh, at the time Vanderbilt had, he was, he was, uh, building these new businesses where the gold rush was going on. And so a lot of people on the East coast wanted to find a way to get to the West coast. And so you'd either go through like the Panama canal or you go around like the, the, uh, South America. And so Vanderbilt figured out a way 
to cut through Central America through like ships, then donkeys, and then trains and all this other crazy shit. But it saved like a ton of time. So he was making a lot of money doing this. Some of his ships during this project just happened to be in the waters of Nicaragua, right? So William Walker's like, hey, uh, I own this country now. Those ships are technically mine. And so he made the drastic mistake of confiscating property that came from Cornelius Vanderbilt. Cornelius Vanderbilt is like a uneducated, like maybe sixth grade education, maybe not even that, right? He came up on the docks in his first business. Like they literally would solve business disputes with fists. He would beat the shit out of other people who would compete with. Like this is a hard dude growing up in an unbelievably tough environment. Now he's one of the wealthiest people in the world and you just picked a fight. There's a line in the book that says, William Walker wasn't afraid. He's like, William Walker wasn't afraid of other people. Uh, he wasn't like other people who was afraid of Cornelius Vanderbilt when he should have been. So Cornelius is like, okay, you took my stuff. That's my stuff. I'm not going to sue you. He has this famous quote. He's like, I'm not going to sue you. The law's too, too, moves too slow. I'll just ruin you. And so he goes to the Secretary of State of America. He's like, hey, we got to kill this guy. I want you to send troops down there. They're like, no, no, we're going to do that. Then he goes to Britain. Same, same thing. Like, at the highest levels of government, which is a funny story I could tell you about Henry Flagler, which is a John D. Rockefeller, about how, like, there's this great line from Will Durant and Will and Ariel Durant, who've spent their entire life studying human history. And in this book called Lessons of History, they say a great line where it's like, in every age, governments have been corrupt and men have been dishonest. It doesn't matter what time period, it's always, and the, the government corruption and the, the collusion with a lot of rich entrepreneurs is, is constant as well, still happens to this day. So anyways, long story short, he hires private mercenaries, uh, some soldiers from America and some soldiers from uh, uh, Britain to go after, to get this guy. They wind up overflowing, throwing him, uh, his temporary government, taking him out to the beach, blindfolding him and killing him. That's the Vanderbilts. That's the the level of the robber barons. Like there is a violent aspect to it, but there's also a they just think way larger. They were not into competition. All this was a comp. They like combination. So let me give an example. You know the the brand Moat Moet Chandon, the Moet. champagne. Mo, well, thank you. Um, so they go the the owners of that company. They go to J P Morgan, and they're like, there's a problem with somebody in another competitor in the industry, right? And so J.P. Morgan, maybe you say, okay, maybe I need to buy the competitor because they're, they're decreasing my profits or whatever. Champagne can only be called champagne if it's manufactured in that specific region of France, right? I think that's where it is. J.P. Morgan's uh, response is just buy up the whole region. The level that these guys thought at is just like, you know, now it's like, oh, I got to buy out my competitor. It's like, no, J.P. is like, I'm just going to own everything. Every single business that's in this region is now mine. It's like that kind of level of grandiosity that you just don't really see anymore that's ruthless i suppose i wonder how much um business has been nerfed a little bit it's certainly revenge of the nerds is something that people throw around a lot at the moment but the business world is optimized for people that have got very very high iqs high conscientiousness low agreeableness and all that they do is obsess over one thing for a very, very long period of time. And that's where your competitive advantage comes from. There's this meme that I absolutely love. It's this sort of broad guy, maybe late 20s, and he's stood at the front of a bed, bath and beyond. And he's like pretty big sort of built dude. And he's got this kind of crap shirt and tie on that you would have if you worked at a bed, bath and beyond. And there's a thought bubble coming out of his head that says, 5,000 years ago, I would have been a proud warrior. Okay, I'm so, I'm so glad you said this. So one of the craziest books I ever read um, was this book called Hard Drive, uh, Bill Gates and the Building of the Microsoft Empire, right? 
And the reason it's a fantastic book, because it only it covers the first 35 years of Bill Gates life, right up until the Microsoft IPO. And to me, you know, Bill Gates now is like everybody thinks of him as like this philanthropist. You know, he's like that's like his big thing. And he, he wants you to, you know, cure malaria and spend all time doing whatever weird shit that he does. Right. But again, I just mentioned earlier, it's like I'm not interested in that version of Bill Gates. I want to know who built his giant fucking empire and his giant wealth. And that dude was psychotic complete psychopath didn't take one single day off in his 20s uh literally only thought about selling more software microsoft was the first software company in the existence that sold a billion dollars worth of software in a year now that does that you know millions of companies that are tons of companies that do that but i made the point in the podcast that i made about that where i realized i'd also been a big fan of um uh, Dan Carlin, who I think is like the, the world's greatest podcaster, his Wrath of the Khan series, I've listened to over and over again. I've read a bunch of books on Genghis Khan, even though I pronounce it incorrectly. And I made the point, like I started studying, like I had just been finished reading about uh, Genghis and Bill Gates. And I'm like, oh, this is the same personality type. Like if he was alive 8,000 years ago, he'd be on horseback trying to chop your fucking head off because that's how you built wealth back then. It was you think very- Bill Gates has got Genghis Khan energy. No, but like even like a Napoleon, like a diminutive like person that it, that knows how to control other people. I called uh, Bill Gates uh, in that podcast. It's Genghis Khan in a Mister Rogers costume. He dresses like Genghis. He dresses like Mister Rogers. You think he's like his fucking little weird nerd, but he's completely ruthless. There's two stories I want to tell you about Bill Gates that are in uh, uh, the, in that book, where he's having a dispute when he's 21 years old. Right? He is writing software for this guy in New Mexico. They're about to move. Um, they're about to move, uh, which turns into Microsoft into, into Seattle. He's having, he's like, I'm want to break away from this agreement that I have with this guy where I'm only writing software for his, uh, hobbyist computer. He's like, I'm going to, I'm going to write software for every computer in the world. And so Bill Gates, like, I have to fight this guy if I'm going to be able to do that. And obviously he needed to win that because that he, that was one step in his eventual monopoly. And so this guy's much older than Bill Gates. He's like in his mid thirties, but he's realized like this guy, Bill Gates is fucking savage. Like this is unbelievable. And so his, while this, this lawsuit is going through his company, the guy that Bill Gates is fighting is sold to this company called Pertech and Pertech's like, I'm not worried. I'm going to do this acquisition. I'm not worried about this lawsuit because I looked at this guy. It's like, what's this 21 year old shaggy fucking kid going to do? Like we're going to destroy him. And the guy's name is Ed Roberts and Ed Roberts warned him. He's like, no, no, no. I've been dealing with Bill Gates for a few years. He goes, he said it was like uh, FDR saying he could handle Stalin. It's just like, you have no idea what's about to happen to you. And sure enough, Bill Gates winds up running them over, winning the lawsuit. And they were just completely unprepared for his level of ruthlessness and genius. There's another example where Bill Gates had encyclopedic knowledge about every single other software company in the computer industry. He could tell you who the CEO is, what their revenue was last year, what their projects are working on, right? And his whole thing this is what got him in trouble with the, the U.S. Department of Justice because he's, you know, some of the stuff wound up being emails and in documentation. It's just like, I, you didn't, we didn't, when he lost, like, let's say Microsoft's competing with a, for a hundred thousand dollar contract and another company. He's like, if that other company wins, he would tell his employees, it's like, you didn't lose me a hundred thousand. You lost me 200,000. And he'd go fucking apeshit because he's like, we lost a hundred thousand and they gained a hundred thousand. So that's a $200,000 loss. So his whole thing is like, I want to destroy every single person in my industry because I want a monopoly. And so there was this guy named Philippe Khan, I think is his name. And you know, he, he knew Bill Gates was gunning for him, but he didn't have any idea like to the, the degree that they were actually like targeting him because a lot of the stuff is secret. So Philippe goes to a computer conference, right? Sees Bill Gates in the corner, sitting in a chair by himself, looking at something. So Philippe goes over because, you know, they may be competing, they may be enemies, but they still like talk to each other. He goes over and he discovers 
that Bill Gates is sitting there staring at a picture of him. That's how he was completely obsessed. He's like, I look, imagine how freaky would that be? If you had a competitor, you go over and he's looking at your face, just like thinking about how he could fucking destroy you. So the reason I say it's the same personality type is because now wealth is can be in many cases, like positive sum, right? Like, uh, you create a new podcast, that podcast brings in revenue. You're not taking that money from anybody else. You're adding something to the world back in Genghis Khan's time. And, and really when, before the invention of the market economy, it's like, no, it's like it was land. It was resources. It was, uh, I'm obsessed with, uh, this, uh, studying like the, the history of the American West, right? Uh, like empire of the summer moon and like, uh, on all these books of like the Comanches and everything else. It's like, why were the Comanches so rich? Because the way they did wealth was horses. Well, where did they get horses? They went and went to where you were, killed you, took your horses, your women and everything else. Like, so w what we considered wealth was like finite. And you had to, unfortunately, like, and for most of human history, it's like, we were just, it was zero sum game. Like there could only be one winner. So that same personality, that Vanderbilt type, that JP Morgan type, Bezos, he's a, clearly an empire builder. Clearly. It just so happens he's born at a time where he can do it without, I shouldn't even say taking away from other people because he's destroyed a bunch of other companies just like Rockefeller did. But you know what I mean? Like he can add something to the world and not have to kill you for the wealth. Yes. Without having to kill a bunch of people, perhaps, or at least directly yeah. kill a bunch of people. God, there's the, uh, Second order effects of whatever Bezos has done with Amazon probably dig fairly deep. You mentioned uh, Jocko earlier on. Yeah. One of his big things is dealing with discomfort and doing hard things. What have you learned from founders about the ability to deal with discomfort? My, there's a bunch of maxims. So I, um, the reason I think uh, I'm so into Charlie Munger and Naval Ravikant is like they, I think you're very limited. Like people can remember certain things. Like to transfer uh, lessons throughout human history, it's like a story. We remember things in stories, right? And we remember things in maxims. So I try to break things down to the aphorism and maxim level. The My favorite maxim that I've read in any of these fucking books throughout the history of entrepreneurship came from the founder of Four Seasons, this guy named Isidore Sharp. And he said, excellence is the capacity to take pain. Like in every single story, there is none, you're not going to find, and this is why I think it's so important for people to understand, like the founder's journey, journey sounds a lot like the hero's journey. It's like nothing's new under the sun, right? And so- he wrote this fantastic book called uh, Four Seasons, My Business Philosophy. It's his autobiography. And he starts out, he's just working in construction with his dad. Like, it's an absolutely fantastic book. And he has this idea of, like, building the, the world's first five, collection of five-star only hotel chain, right? Guy's still alive, winds up, he actually, this is going to be funny. He sold his business to some guy, one of, like, the kings of Saudi Arabia and Bill Gates. So tied to the Bill Gates <laughs> empire building thing. Like, this guy... You, you you don't have enough money, Bill? Like, why are you buying the Four Seasons, Bill? What the hell is wrong with you? These guys are relentless. Uh, Elon just talked about the fact that he he heard that um, Bill Gates had like a $500 million short position on Tesla like a few years ago. It's like, what is wrong with you, Bill? Like, this is why I say like he'd be on horseback because Genghis didn't stop. He just like, I'll just, you know, I'll just I'll just keep going till I get to Europe until like I hit the other sea. Um, so anyways, uh, Izzy has this thing where it's just like he, he transitions from being working construction and like building maybe individual houses to like his first business or whatever the case is that book talks about like the, the amount of emotional stress that you're going to be under. His wife has a great thing in the book where she'd wake up at like three in the morning and she'd find her husband with like his arms behind his head, just looking up at the ceiling, trying to like deal with like, fuck, I have this big problem. I, I don't, where, where am I going to get the money? How are we going to do this? And so he realized like, it's supposed to be difficult. Uh, Jeff Bezos has another great line. He's like, we're, we're trying to create something special, something we can tell our, our grand, something we can be proud of that we can tell our grandchildren about. 
those things are not meant to be easy. Anything that comes easy is almost worthless. So that's where I like resonate with Jocko. Jocko's my alarm clock, dude. Like I wake up every morning and Jocko's like, get to the gym because you can buy his, uh, he's got a spoken word, uh, album on iTunes called, uh, psychological warfare. And I was playing it in the car with my wife the other day because, uh, I work seven days a week, but the reason I do that is because like I have a balance of spending time with my family, taking care of my health and working, and I can't fit that in Monday through Friday or else I won't have, like there'll be some days where all I do is work. So I, I find it better to spread out over seven days and then you can actually balance everything, like the Ed Dorp thing. Um, but I was playing and I was like, Jocko has this thing where he's like, this is an everyday thing. <laughs> he's like, he has, he's like, there's no Monday. <laughs> it's just, he just, or there's no Saturday, Sunday. he's just a hilarious person. Um, but to answer your question, there's no book that I've ever read where it's like, oh, this person had an idea to build a business. They started doing business. It went great. End of story. It's like, oh, I want to do this. I take one step forward, three steps back. Oh, damn, that hurt. And in fact, have you seen this? Um, the, the greatest illustration of this comes in like a, the first few minutes. There's this documentary on HBO. You know who Tony Hawk is, the professional skater? Yeah. Have you seen the documentary yet? No. I think you'll like it, especially because I think you're going to find a, a parallel with the, the, the journey you've been on in building your podcast where – it shows Tony practicing, trying to do the the 920 to, the, to invent that new uh, move in skating, right? And it starts out, and he goes up on the ramp and falls down. He's like, oh, gets back up. Then tries again, falls down, gets back up. Then he falls down again. Now he stays down a little longer. Now he's like breathing heavy. He's like, oh, oh, breathing. He's like, do I want to do this? Like, gets back up. This goes on for like three or four or five minutes to one point where he's like he falls and he like yelps in physical pain. He's like, ah, like, like he broke a fucking rib or something, right? He's down for a long time gets back up and i watched that and by the time i saw that i had read like you know 250 biographies i'm like oh that's what's in the books it's you're going to be experiencing pain most people quit why do i have uh, shackleton on my phone by endurance we conquer it is supposed to be painful going into that so the number one book recommendation i have is james dyson has two autobiographies right he just wrote a new another one that was published that's not that's a i read that book too it's it's great that's not the book his first autobiography that came out at the time, Dyson only had, it was still only in the UK, and he only had one product, which was his Cyclone Vacuum. Now he's built this empire, like one of the most valuable private private companies in the world, right? But it, the reason I recommend that book is because it's 14 years of pain and struggle and this weird guy that refuses to quit. He opens up the bag on the Hoover Junior vacuum cleaner, does not understand why the suction doesn't work when he's like, 32 maybe and by the time he is holding in his hand a vacuum cleaner he owns completely that is up to his standards that he can now start selling he's like 44 45 it's 14 years of struggle in that entire book you can read it in a weekend first of all he's funny there's a lot of good ideas on how to build a business in there but the value to me is like how many times he goes from his carriage house into after an entire day of he built 5127 prototypes before he got it right who the fuck would do that? Who would do 500 podcasts before they get a monster break, right? It's the same fucking thing over and over again. And so, but he's like, listen, I could say that it's easy to say determination is important. Persistence is important. It's another thing to go into your house covered in suit, crying your fucking eyes out as an adult man with a wife and two kids to support with now a second fucking mortgage on my house that is tied to my business. And if I fail, we don't have a fucking house. That is a different level of pain tolerance. And what happens? He sticks to it. There's been plenty of people that did that and failed. 
you have to be aware of survivorship rights. But what happens now? You fast forward, right? He has this great thing. Um, now you fast forward, and he he owns 100% of Dyson. It makes somewhere between reputed, uh, reportedly two to three to four billion dollars of profit. Is it private? Private. So he owns 100% of it. Fuck off. Dyson's private. still private. Jesus and you, Christ. And you know this because it's from the UK where he, he had this invention called the ball barrel where he's like, fuck it. This is way earlier in his career. It's also a story in the book where um, it, instead of like having a wheel, it's a ball and it like, she doesn't get stuck when you're doing gardening and stuff. And he goes and does the photo shoot at some giant, you know, you guys have these estates and mansions and uh, I don't even know what they're, they're not even fucking mansions. They're estates in, in the UK or whatever. And he's like 20 years ago. I rented, uh, like, I paid to take uh, pictures of this product that I made here. And he goes, now nah, I just bought this shit. This is mine now. Like, but again, that he, like, he suffered through 14 years. How many people would absolutely quit? That's, and this is, like, why it's important. I know that you've Sorry. spoken to the guys that work with Jack Butcher on his podcast. I don't think Jack was there. And Jack's got that yeah. super, super famous graph, which is you are here, right? And it's the best talking about that that famous uh, illustration that had been around for years and years of these two guys digging and they're both digging along together trying to get toward diamonds and one of them gives up <laughs> just before he's about to hit the diamonds and the other guy's still enthusiastic. Yeah. Survivorship bias is an interesting thing. Reason being that it is limited by the people that didn't give up or it's it's the it's always in reference to the people that decided not to give up, right? The survivors are the ones that do that and for all of the people that uh, the Michael Jordans of the world, there's that story of him saying, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he's 11 years old or something. And he says, I want to be an NBA star. And the career advisor to 11-year-old. Kobe. 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 Kobe yep. uh, says, yep. you can't do this. Like this is Maybe you should pick something else. Maybe you should be more realistic. That's a one in a million shot. And he says, I'm going to be that one in a million. Right? Yes. The people who do not make it to that stage are the ones that can't dig into consistency. Like, you don't know if consistency will get you there but you can be guaranteed that if you are not consistent, you will not get there. Yes. And given um, that... Uh, sorry, go ahead. Just given that, the fact that survivorship bias is an easy get-out-of-jail-free card for a lot of people to use when they see success that seems improbable and they are concerned that that sets a bad standard for people moving forward. But you don't know what the point is that almost everybody else gets to at which everybody wants to quit, right? There's this stat you mentioned earlier on about podcasting. 90% of podcasts don't make it past episode three. And of the 10% that do, 90% don't make it past episode 20. So yeah. by making 21 podcast episodes, you're in the top percentile of all podcasters ever in history. That's all it takes. So what does that tell you? Well, it tells you that there is a degree of discomfort or something. There is some sort of challenge that is faced by almost everybody or by everybody that a very, very small number of people can get over. So is it survivorship bias to look at shows that are successful and say, well, you know, that's highly improbable. And you go, well, is it? Or is it just that there is a particular hurdle which tactically you need to get past? And once you do, you're broken out into this unbelievably vast open space with relatively few competitors. I think it's a, a quote that I learned from you about uh, your mediocrity is my opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is the way I like, I fucking hate when people bring that up. Cause a lot of people will respond to like some post. Um, like if I, if I say, Hey, most of all my social media channels are just like repurposing highlights. It's like, I don't have a lot of opinion. 
my opinions are relevant. It's like, hey, this Michael Jordan said this about this. You might find it valuable, right? Uh, the, the founder of Dunkin' Donuts said this. You might find it valuable. Like that's all. It's all educational content. Um, even if they never listen to the podcast, my goal with all the, my social media channels is like, oh, you'll learn something. And hopefully you check out my podcast. If you don't, that's cool. I'm fine with you just learning like these little, like me repurposing these 20,000 highlights I have. And a lot of this stuff is just like survivorship bias. And I, like, I don't want to paint with a broad brush because obviously it's a real thing. It's just like, to me, that's like a loser mentality, right? It's like, I'm going to figure this out no matter what. And I'll either fucking die. Or, like, I'm going to do this or I'm going to die trying. Like, I have found something I love so much and that I will reverse engineer, just like what Dyson did. Dyson's like, okay, it's like you take these things in little steps. You're not a fucking idiot, dude. Like, there's a, more opportunity out there than anybody could possibly imagine. So Dyson's like, well, why don't vacuum, why do bags get clogged? This is fucking weird. She's like, well, maybe I'll figure out like, like, and he was working on something else. And he realized, oh, I can use a cyclone. And he's like, well, how do I make a cyclone? I don't know how to make a cyclone. So then I'll figure out how to make a cyclone. Then once I solve that, okay, now how do I sell uh, my vacuum cleaner? Do I license it? He went down licensing. Oh, the licensing doesn't work. Oh, maybe I have to do it myself. Do I need a partner? Okay, I take on a partner. Partnership didn't work. Okay, I'll do it myself. It's like break things down to smaller components and then just figure it out. For like me and you, it's very simple. It's like all of our time is broken down into we make the podcast and then all of the other time is like we just have to make people aware of its existence. And then the podcast will convert them themselves. When people find founders like, what the fuck is going on here? Why is this fucking guy with this giant head reading all these biographies? It's like, then they start listening. Then they listen to one. Then they listen to two. Then they listen to 40. And by the time they get to 30, 40, 50 episodes, it is impossible for them to not tell other people about it. And guess what? The best market for a new startup is a group of like-minded people concentrated together that no one else is serving. Well, guess what? What? You're a founder. I'm a founder. Who do you know? You know a ton of other fucking entrepreneurs and founders. And so if you find something like, hey, this is valuable for my work, or I learned something from Chris's podcast, you don't shut up about it. Just like if I see a great movie or a great CD or, or CD, now I'm showing my age, a great track on Spotify or whatever, it's like I send it to our funny TikTok. It's natural to share people. So it's like, for us, it's very simple. It's like, I'm going to stay in the game. I'm going to try to, like, you go back. I thought your early podcasts are still great. But I guarantee if you go back to like episode 100, you're probably like, oh, you're like, I'm so much better because I do the same thing. I'll get messages about like, I listened to episode 50 last time. I'm like, please don't, Fuck. please, please, <laughs> please don't. But they don't, you know what I mean? But that's also a good thing that Paul Graham talks about. It's like the great thing about painting is the painters leave like a progression so you can see the gradual refinement over time. And very few other domains uh, show that, right? But podcasting does. Go watch, I was listening to Joe Rogan my friend Eric put me on a Joe Rogan back in like 2010 because he was into UFC. He's like, come over to my house and watch this, this uh, podcast. And I was like, what the fuck is a podcast? <laughs> and then it'd be Joe sitting on his couch, his white couch with Brian Redband. And there'd be like snow and shit. Like it was on Ustream. It wasn't, I didn't like, we were not listening on Apple podcasts. I mean, this is probably 2009 actually. Um, but my point is like, then go see, compare Joe episode two or, you know, 50 with episode 2000. And this is the, uh, I'm going to go back to um, the survivorship bias. And I want to talk about something else real quick that just that popped up. I just finished reading, uh, rereading Peter Thiel zero to one. And he is, his whole thing is like, he has a definitive worldview. He's like, you're not a fucking lottery ticket. You have control and mastery over the world. You have to go out and like, you can have, if you plan and, and, and strive to things, you can actually change the world, which is all entrepreneurs understand. Uh, Steve Jobs said the same thing. He's like, once you re realize that everything around you was built by people no smarter than you, like you want, and you can make your own things that other people interact with. You can literally change and poke the world and something changed on the other side of the uh, other side. You'll never be the same. But there's people, what I realize, like there's so many people that don't believe that. They think life is something that happens to them. And so what Peter Thiel says in that book, he quotes this Emerson quote, shallow men believe in luck, strong men believe in cause and effect. 
Yes, you have to stay in the game long enough to get lucky. But you know how you get lucky? By preparing all the time, by showing up every day for fucking years. My podcast, Just Like Yours, has grown unbelievably. Uh, like the rate of growth in 2022 has been fucking crazy. But what people didn't see is like me sitting in a room by myself for four years every day before that. That's why I love what Kanye said on his, and I'm not talking about what the fuck he, how he is now or anything else, right? But on his first on his first album, he says, he's like, lock yourself in a room for, for every, uh, make it five beats a day, every day for three summers. I deserve to do these numbers. That's what it is. He's also like, he's like, I've been making beats since I was 12. You didn't know who the fuck I was till, since I, uh, till I sold my beat to Jay-Z when I was 24. You didn't see the 12 years, the time that you're hanging out with friends, you're going to parties. It's like, I'm making beats and I'm rapping on beats. There's a fantastic, if you want to talk about the founder's journey, the hero's journey, let's call it the founder's journey. Uh, the first two episodes of Genius, which is the Kanye West documentary on Netflix, skip the third episode, it's useless. But those first two, he had the wherewithal to be followed around when he was 20, 21, 22, 23 by a fucking camera crew as he's trying to break into the industry. That shit that you see in those first two, and I play it on my computer over and over again because I feel like I'm in that same spot. It's like I've been, I, I was in my, I was in my, this fucking booth that you see me in, this soundproof booth, reading every day. I was making five beats a day for three summers. It's like, now I just broke in. Now see what I'm going to do with this. I'm not, I'm going to put my foot on the gas. I'm going to take every opportunity I can. I'm going to keep working as much as I, I possibly can. And I, cause I believe in cause and effect. I'm going to do the work necessary. So I become lucky and I don't give a shit about, oh, this, this podcaster, you know, did it for a year or two and then quit. That's irrelevant to me because I'm not quitting a family friend of mine. Um, my, my brother-in-law's best friend, right? They're like, Hey, I know David's into podcasting. I started my own podcast. I'd love to be able to like pick his brain about it. And, uh, because he's a family friend, I was like, yeah, I'll talk to you, whatever. He's like a nice guy. So I wound up talking to him and he's telling me about like, he started this podcast and he's like, oh man, I, I did a, a, some episodes and then I stopped. And he was talking about weird stuff where he'd like have all his guests travel to like a professional recording studio. Right. It's like, you know, first of all, you don't need that. Like, like just, you need reps, 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 Arnold Schwarzenegger's thing. It's like, everything is reps. Right. And then I talked to him we were talking for a while. And then I, I found out, wait a minute, this is like, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 minutes of the conversation. I can't remember. But I was like, how many episodes have you done? He's like, six. I was like, call me back when you hit 100. Click. What the fuck are we talking about? I literally told him, I was like, we have nothing to talk about. You've done six. The, the, the arrogance, and he's not an arrogant kid, the arrogance that you think you could do something six times and be good at it. Why hasn't the world delivered me what I deserve? <laughs> it's crazy. And this is a nice, smart kid, right? I'm not like insulting him. I was like, bro, do fucking 100 and then we'll, we'll I talk. I think the reason, the, the reason that people have those points of view is because they don't see behind the scenes what's gone on you know you look at the rogan with the several hundred million dollar spotify deal and all of the plays and all of the accolades and all that stuff and you think well yeah like i know he's done for a long time but like now surely there's a way to shortcut that i can get to where he is or somewhere close to that in a in less time uh, and there are people you know there are people that have had uh shortcuts to achieving that you know brendan shorb is someone that gets accused of being one of the people that kind of got a Q jump because of how much time he got on exposure he got from Rogan. You think, yeah. well, maybe, but is that really going to be your growth strategy to hope to be plucked out of obscurity? I'm not, I'm not convinced that that's going to be a replicable way to do things. So one thing that a lot of people have probably got in their minds is uh, trying to understand your progressive summarization uh, technique. You're reading a lot of books. Your recall is good. Um, high level what is the process that you think is best for people to go through if they want to retain the important things from the books that they read? 
so I think this actually ties together. Um, so Jerry Seinfeld has this great interview with Harvard Business Review, and they're like, hey, you know, you kind of micromanaged everything. And, uh, you know, could you have like, maybe instead of doing a show for nine years, you could have done it for a lot longer. You didn't get burned out. Like maybe you would have you should have hired McKinsey to help you. And he's like, who's McKinsey? They're like, oh, it's a consulting firm. He's like, are they funny? And he's like, no, they're not funny. He's like, then I don't need them. He's like, the hard way is the right way. He's like, I'm I go I, he's, him and Larry wrote every single word. They picked every all the actors. They, they did everything right. He's like, that's the only way I know how to to work. Right. And so my process is very similar to that. The way I relate it to Joe Rogan is like, if you think about it, Joe Rogan's built uh, an empire with his fucking mouth, with his mouth and everything he does, it looks easy. People are like, oh, it's just like three hours of, you know, shooting the shit with your friends. It's not easy, as you as you know. Right. And if you think it was like everything that he's interested in, like it's all these forms of practice. It's like he's obsessed with the UFC and he's been a commentator for 20 years. That's his mouth. He's had to be like he's using he's he's learning how to to break down what he's seeing and make it interesting for the listener uh, and, and the viewer. Right. He's obsessed with comedy. He's been doing comedy for 30 fucking years. Same thing. How many reps has that guy put in? on the microphone to make it look easy when he goes in front of now 25,000 people, right? Same thing with this podcast. Night, episode 1900 looks easy because you didn't see the decade before. So I believe in the hard way. So this is uh, our mutual friend, Eric Jorgensen. We have a lot of funny conversations because he just cannot believe. He's like, so who edit, who edits your podcast? I do. Why the hell? He's like, everything I do, no one I'm really glad. Me. I'm really glad that you brought up Jorgensen, because I was at a bachelor party a couple of months ago, and obviously he's Mr. Leverage, right? He's Mr. Scale, he's Mr. <laughs> Mr. Outsource. And I think that both me and you have strategies when it comes to the way that we do our project that makes him feel nauseous, frankly. Yes. And so his whole thing, he's like, David, you should only be... And listen, Eric's super smart. The reason I like him is because not only he's a good writer, but what is rare is how articulate he is. Well, you probably interviewed a bunch of writers. Like, like you know, like, it's a he has he he's able to be articulate and write really well, which I think he's like we're just gonna see this guy's gonna blow up. I think his idea, what he's doing with all these versions of the almanac and everything, like I, I, that guy's gonna sell a fuck ton of books. I wish I could lifetime. invest in him. If I could invest yeah. in him, I would. Yeah. He, yeah, and so he he heard. Um, <laughs> so I've told him this too. Where okay, so my process is crazy, but there's a reason for it. So um, one of the things I love is that I have an unfair advantage. Kanye said like. Oh, I have an unfair advantage because like I hear my beats first. Right. And my unfair advantage is like I read the books first and all I do is like I'm having one sided conversations with history great entrepreneurs and all they do is tell me their best ideas and then I can apply them to podcasting and and put them through like I, my view of the world and like my own unique spin on things. Right. And so one thing I learned is like it gave me more confidence that my way is the way that's right for me. It's Mozart was obviously very gifted. He starts, you know, creating music when he's like three years old, dies relatively young. But his, he was like psychopathic, just like Michael Jordan was in, in his form of practice. And he would practice more. It's funny. It's like you think of A players, but like there's a difference between like the top 1% and then like the top 0.1%, right? And Mozart's clearly at the top 0.1%, which is almost a different world from the top 1%. And so he practiced way more than anybody else. And as a result, he had physical attributes that his competitors lacked. And it's like he had insane uh, left-hand strength from playing certain instruments. And then what happens is there's these trends in music back then, just like trends uh, now, where there was this instrument, I think it's called like a viola. It's not a violin, it's like something called like a viola, right? Becomes extremely popular. And what he realized, he had like a decade or two decades of, of practice where his left hand is so so much stronger 
and therefore capable of making music with this instrument that the, his competitors that did not put in that time and practice lacked. And so by the time they're like, hey, I want to jump on this trend. Okay, well, you're 10 years behind and you're never going to, you can't, you couldn't catch Mozart. So my version is that, of that is I read the books, right? Um, I read physical books. If I did Kindle, it'd be so much faster, but I have a love affair with like, there's a romance to physical books for me. It's the first books I read when I was, you know, five or six years old. So I, ha I sit down with a book uh, with a pen, a ruler, post-it notes and scissors. It's like I'm fucking doing arts and crafts over here. And I just, I read the book. I, I start reading the page. I read in chronological order. Um, and then whatever, I don't think about it. It's like all instinct. What jumps out? What, it, like sometimes I'll highlight almost everything on a page. Sometimes I'll go fucking 20 pages with nothing. It's what speaks to me. And then I highlight it. And then I write down on a post-it note what comes to mind first. It could be like an interpretation of that. Oh, that made me think of this thing. So that's another thing. Like I don't think of, um, I know we have to, we have to, um, separate things into episodes. But to me, it's like founders is one giant 400 hour conversation on the history of entrepreneurship that I'm just going to keep adding to. Like when I do an episode on, uh, I just, I'm doing an episode. Uh, the book I was reading this morning is, is called, uh, what I learned before I sold to Warren Buffett. This guy built up this giant, uh, diamond and jewelry business and then sold it to Warren Buffett in the 1990s. I, that episode when it comes out, it's not just gonna be on that. It's gonna be on how he thinks it's relates to what Steve Jobs said or this other person said here or whatever the case is. So I read, go through the book, make my highlights, right? Then uh, the night before I sit down to record, I reread all the highlights again. Not the whole book, but literally reread my highlights and the, the notes. So that's the second time I've read them, right? Then I sit down in the morning, me and you were talking about before we start recording. Uh, I like to record my thing. My brain is so much dumber in the, the afternoon. It's, it's remarkable. It's remarkable how dumb I am. But in the morning, it's feels when I'm feeling sharpest, I sit down and go through. And the way I, the, the podcast is set up, is like, hey, what if you could meet up with your friend who reads a lot and once a week, he just tells you the shit he learned this week. So I talk, you've heard the podcast, like I talk directly to the person. There's no fourth wall. It's like, I picture literally a fucking friend sitting in front of me and we just talk just like that. So now that's the third time through. Then I edit all the podcasts myself. And there's not a lot of editing. It's like, uh, it's just like, maybe I'll get up to go to the bathroom or like, oh, that part's boring in the second part. So I'll just cut that out. Um, but it's very straightforward because it's like, there's no production it's just me, one human talking to another. So that's the fourth time I've heard the, the highlights. Then I take out this app called Readwise and I take pictures on the iOS app of, you can take pictures of a page of a book and it'll automatically read, like turn that text, uh, like do the text recognition. You have to like fix a few things, but I put all those highlights into Readwise and I type in my notes. So that's the fifth fucking time. By the time I'm done with the book, I've read my highlights five times. And then my second half of the day, which today I haven't done uh, because we're recording in the afternoon, is I'll spend a few hours just rereading. Like uh, the iOS app on Readwise has this thing. Uh, you pull it up. It's called Highlights uh, Highlights Feed. It looks like, I'll show it to you, the camera. I don't know if it's going to pull up, but it looks like a Twitter feed. But instead of tweets, it's my highlights from past books and my notes on the book. Um, and then what I'll do is I'll use that I got this idea from Michael Bloomberg, actually, because he repurposed the information that his the unique information that his business collected, uh, which was selling the subscriptions of the financial data and then repurposed that information into media form, uh, into media content and his media empire. And then that would then fuel subscriptions to his, you know, his twenty five thousand dollars seat, whatever thing. So that's when people see tweets uh, or stuff on LinkedIn. That's all coming from a Readwise app. Then I'll film myself in this booth that you're looking at right now reading those highlights and put them on TikTok and stuff like that. 
And so it all funnels back to, and again, it's a form of practice. So now by the time I'll, I'll probably record maybe Sunday morning, maybe Monday morning, depends on how long it takes me to read the book. But by the time I sit down, everything I'm about to say is informed by the book I read, but also all my practice that I've done the previous six or seven days. Um, and so my whole thing is like, I'm terrified of wasting anybody's time. And so that level of preparation, one, I think it's extremely rare, especially in the entrepreneur domain. I don't think, I don't, I'm not, don't, I'm not saying this is an arrogant thing. It's like, I release a podcast every week. I did 66 last, last year, actually. I don't think anybody else is building a podcast exclusively focused on founders that does more preparation than I do that releases as fast as I do. And so I'm obsessed with just building the Warren Buff thing, building that moat. The longer this goes on, the more difficult I am going to be to compete in the future. Cause I think of these as not, it's an obsession that happens to be a podcast or excuse me, a session disguises a podcast that happens to be a business. And so being smart is like, how do I, again, you, you know this cause you have 500 fucking 60 fucking episodes. It's like, it's going to be very hard for you to replicate what you've been building up and all this shit that you're learning that then informs the conversations you have in the future with somebody saying, Hey, I'm going to, you know, I like what Chris does. I'm going to jump in and try to compete head to head with them. Good fucking luck, buddy. Dude, I'm really impressed with what you're doing. I think it's great. Uh, I think that teaching people through stories, especially stories from history, uh, some of my favorite modes of learning, Ryan Holiday, Robert Greene, you know, these guys have made absolute monster careers out of being um, historians masquerading as philosophers. Uh, <laughs> and uh, it's a very cool way to approach it. Uh, so let's wind this one up. Before you go, three books that you most often gift to people. Well, okay, so... The most often that a gift to people would be uh, uh, Against the Odds, an autobiography by James Dyson. It is was published, you know, 20 something years ago. It is now hard to find. It's out of print. It is somewhat expensive. I have a friend that just bought it. And he paid $100. It's fucking worth $100. It's worth way more than that. Those are hard to find. I give uh, Eric Jorgensen's The Almanac and Naval away a lot. Um, there's a fantastic book called The River of Doubt, which is a biography on Teddy Roosevelt, but it, it focuses on him, his life after he lost the, the last presidential election. Uh, Teddy's one of my personal heroes as well, his approach to life. Um, in fact, I'm about to do, uh, I've just bought Edmund Morris's three-part biography of Ted, uh, Teddy Roosevelt. It's 3,000 pages I have to read on Teddy, which I'm looking forward to. But anyways, this river of doubt, it's, ex, it's about the capacity to take pain, endurance, treating life like the adventure it is. He goes and it's like, hey, I need to like anytime he went to something rough in life he looked for he's his his motto is get action and he's like i need to the physical emotional pain i have is only alleviated through physical action right and so he's like i'm going to go down to the amazon and i'm going to map out a tributary of this river that no one's ever completed and he almost dies it's just the writing is absolutely fantastic two other books and yes or three but um one of the best books if you can find it i don't give this as a gift a lot because it's hard to find estee lauder wrote one of the best autobiographies that you can ever find a complete obsessive her i'm using her playbook a lot in the way i'm building founders and like she just obsessed over customers did things that did not scale she writes the book she dies the pub the company is still a private family company and now it's you know doing like 18 billion dollars of revenue it's called a success story by estee lauder really hard to find but you can read it in a weekend full of just useful information um and then i i would add uh one other book, you have to read a biography of Steve Jobs, in my opinion. I've read everyone that's available. The best one, if you only had to read one, it's called Becoming Steve Jobs, The Evolution of a Reckless Upstart to a Visionary Leader. 
I think is the turn the the, ter, uh, the title, and that's a shorter version. You get a, a full sense of who he is in like three hundred pages. Dude, I love it. Where should people go if they want to check out the stuff you do? Founders Podcast by David Sunner and any podcast player. That's basically it. I put my entire all of my life energy into that one vehicle, and I'd be thrilled if you guys try to uh, test it out. Dude, thank you. No, thank you. I'm super happy to, to, that I got a chance to meet you and to be connected. My so pleasure, I really appreciate the time. Yeah, no problem.